Welcome to the Rip Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. I'm John Brown from RiffHard.com and Monuments. My co-host is A.L. Levy, co-founder of URM Academy and guitarist from Darth. Thank you so much for being here. Since the podcast is brand new, let me tell you a little bit about it. We're having real conversations with guitarists who we consider to be the best and most relevant on earth. If you like this podcast and would like us to continue making more, please share our episodes with your friends. Post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me, Al, and our guest. You spell those tags at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E. M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S and A-L Levy U-R-M Audio. And that's spelt E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. And leave us reviews and five stars wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We will never charge you for this podcast and will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on with it. All right, let me tell you a bit about our guest today. I'm sure you've heard of him, but just in case you've been living under a rock, Ackle Caney is a guitarist, producer, songwriter, and mixer, best known for his bands Fell Silent and the one and only Tesseract. He's also the force behind 4D Sounds, where he offers mixing, mastering, guitar and drum tone curation, songwriting, and a plethora of other services. Ackle has worked with such bands as The Contortionist, Silosis, and Heart of a Coward, as well as with companies like BBC Radio 1, Century Media, Nuclear Blast, and Basic Records. I'll shut up now, and let's get to the episode. Here is Ackle. Ackle Caney, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Yo, yo, yo. How you doing? Good. And how are you doing, John? I'm doing good. How are you both doing, Ackle and uh, Al? Brown. Yeah, good, man. Good. <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a while. I haven't spoken to you in ages, man. I think the last time was in March, actually. You actually, it was probably the last time you got to go out. Yeah, that's true. It was the last gig I went to. It was uh, Monuments in London. It was a fun night. Yeah, it was. It was good fun. I don't remember much of it. Have you been locked up since March? Yeah, pretty much. It's been a good couple of months now, isn't it? Yeah. I think it was a week after that show is when the lockdown happened. So around March 12th, I think, that we've all been stranded to sweating in our studios. Stuck in the studio because that's kind of what we do anyway. So it's not actually that much different. <laughs> yeah, I, that was what I was going to ask was how different is this than your normal life? Not that different. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I've got no excuses and I've got to actually get on with work and write music. Damn. <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny. That's uh, something that I've noticed lately is a lot of people who used to complain about not having enough time to do stuff are now finding other reasons to not do stuff and kind of brings up the idea that time was never the issue. Yeah, just you're the issue. <laughs> yeah. I've still got writer's block, so that's kind of frustrating. Well, I mean, if you're in a pandemic lockdown or you're in normal life and uh, you're not getting anything done, there's a common denominator there. Yeah, right. Which is you. <laughs> you. <laughs> you. But you guys have been uh, super active. I caught the live stream you put out. The quality is superb oh thank you man yeah that was fun it was a bit of something to bridge the uh bridge the gap while we're not 
you know, touring and stuff. Well, the thing that caught me about it, you know, live streaming is actually pretty damn hard to do. This is something that I've been doing for a while and I know it's hard and I've seen a lot of people start doing it now. A lot of people really, really suck at it. <laughs> Just being honest, your stream came out and the quality is insane. Were you guys, was that actually tracked live with you guys over the internet? No, so we did look into that and it's... I was going to say that seemed a little risky. Yeah, yeah, right. That would have gone very wrong probably. Plus, I don't think the tech really exists to do it well but we did look into that and yeah it wasn't really an option so we just did one take each essentially so we got jay to do his drums first then i did my guitars then amos and james did their parts and then dan did his vocals and we all just did it in one take except for one or two overdubs i did for like one or two lead parts so live-ish as close to as live as we could get considering we're all hundreds, well, thousands of miles apart. Yeah. The reason I was curious was because I didn't think that the tech existed. No. I wanted to know if you had found some new alien technology <laughs> or something that I wasn't aware of. There is that thing on Cubase, though, isn't there, where you can uh, track over the internet. Um, but I think the latency causes problems, doesn't it? The VST Connect, I think is that what it's called? I can't remember. I think that's the one, yeah. We did look into that. It's mainly for recording remotely, because we asked Steinberg about that, but it's not really designed for jamming if you know what i mean it's a shame really because like that sort of tech right now would be very useful to a lot of people well you know what the good news is this isn't the last pandemic so (laughs) (laughs) it sounds like great news (laughs) yeah maybe by the next one the tech will be ready so (laughs) if it's almost there then you can count on it for next time (laughs) i have a friend who he does a lot of let's just say remote recording for TV shows like Bob's Burgers and lots of times they do sessions over the internet where the voice talent is in New York and the production staff is in LA and somehow they make it work seamlessly but also it's not a technical progressive metal band trying to play in time with each other. Yeah I guess that's the difference isn't it the latency and trying to keep in time. I feel like it could work if everyone's playing to the drummer then I feel like it could work somehow actually i think it probably could work i think it would just require the information of how much latency is actually going on like the program would automatically calculate how much latency is happening from each location kind of compensate for it and compensate yeah. kind of like it does in pro tools for when you add external hardware mm-hmm. yeah so may- maybe maybe the tech's already there it just needs someone to compile it together probably it just needs like fine tuning probably i guess the drummer wouldn't be able to listen to anything that's going on right yeah. That would be like any prog metal band then, wouldn't it? Because they all play to tracks, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they just play to a click anyway, right? Or they did. I mean, now we've all got those mixer things that we can use live. But originally in the start, they were playing to recorded guitars and just a click. So in theory, you could make it work and it wouldn't really be that different for anyone. Yeah, not for sure. Sounds like a business proposition to me. Want <laughs> <laughs> to take guys to do it. The thing is, how many bands do you think would actually make good use of that technology. I honestly don't think that many because uh, it's... It's true. Yeah, it's a fucking pain in the ass to stream stuff in the first place. It'd be good right now in the you know medium term, but probably not so much potentially in the long term. Yeah, and you already have the advantage that you're technically like able to do things, right? Like I'm sure that your studio background played into this considerably. Yeah, so I mean, like Amos dealt with all the video side of things. That's why we, all his camera shots looked way more beautiful than anyone else's. <laughs> but I did all the uh, mixing side of things and the mastering side of things at my place. 
When did you get into mixing and mastering? At what point in uh, your, I guess, musical journey was that? Probably Phil Silent back with back in uh, with, with Brown. So that's a good like what, fifteen, seventeen years ago. I mean, I was dabbling when I was like fifteen, sixteen with like some free door you could get off the internet. Well, on a CD even back then, just with uh, you know, drum loops. I think I remember my first recording I did was a cover of a Limp Biscuit song. It sounded awful, but that's how I first got into it. <laughs> Gotta start somewhere. I've never heard that. <laughs> it was the same drum loop, just over and over for about two seconds. Just like a two-second loop going over and over. Well, I actually remember Ackles' setup when I first joined Fell Silent. So Fell Silent had been going for a year, and he was using an M-Audio interface with the BX5 monitors, which you can right. still buy today. I've still got them, yeah. They're great. I still like using them as reference monitors. It was actually, you had a Sound Blaster Audigy. It wasn't even the M audio yet. That's right. <laughs> yeah, back when I was like 17 or 18. So yeah, it's been a good... I had one of those. Good 18 years, 17 years, I think. Tell me if it did this for you. This question is actually for both of you because you're both recording guitar players. Tell me if this sounds familiar at all. Before I recorded and I just played guitar, I thought that I was getting pretty decent, but I had no way to judge, so it was all in my mind. And then when I started recording, the idea of timing just blew my mind. I didn't realize how off I was and recording and hearing myself back really helped me get like a hundred times more solid. Is it that way for you guys? Yeah, definitely. hundred percent. Like I think when it comes to that sort of stuff, you don't really, you, you know, when you're doing one task and then you're trying to judge another part of that task. Yep. So say you're playing guitar, you're not really paying that much attention to the timing. You're trying to concentrate on the guitar part of it. But then once you actually record yourself and hear yourself to the metronome, you realize just how terrible you are as a guitar player because you can't judge it. <laughs> yeah, and I think actually learning to play to a metronome is something you have to learn, you know, when you're young or at any age for that matter. But it's it is a skill in itself, I think, because some people just don't know how to do it until they get used to it after doing it for a little while. How long did it take for you? Thinking back, if you can remember. Oh God, I can't remember that far back. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was I was doing it so often, and it, I can't really remember to be honest. But I would say I felt like I was probably more focused on practicing guitar before I was recording and then practicing production kind of slowly took over practicing guitar, if that makes sense. So annoyingly or frustratingly, I don't practice guitar that often because I'm always focusing on, oh, how can I make that sound better? Or how can I make, how can I get that tone sounding better? Which is a little frustrating. I think that that's pretty common. I actually think that's pretty common. Like, I don't know a single recording guitar player who is able to do both all the way. Like, something has to give yeah we'll just balance each one out <laughs> we'll try to i guess it's just trying to be disciplined with it and trying to balance them out well how long had you been playing when you started recording uh i started when i was eight or nine years old so i'd probably been playing for a good yeah what, six seven years something like that okay so you were well into it yeah so at least i had like a yeah a head start so to speak which definitely helped yeah that helped me as well i had like seven years logged on guitar of like serious guitar playing so even though i started playing a lot less when i started recording like i already had knowledge of how to get better and that's i think that that's one of the most important things is uh it's not that you can have to practice all day every day it's that you know how to practice so that if you only have two hours, you know what to do. You can make the most out of those two hours. Yeah. When you're a beginner or something or intermediate, two hours is not enough. You have to be doing like six or seven hours or you're kind of 
not going to get good. I think that also with recording, even though you're not necessarily seeing it as guitar practice, it technically is because the focus has just shifted a little bit. True. I guess if you're writing, or at least when I'm writing, that's, yeah, that makes sense. Because if I've got, if it's going well and I'm trying to sort of record, or I'm writing something, I'm recording something at the same time, I can be, you know, looping apart for hours and hours until I nail it you know you're kind of essentially writing it and learning it at the same time so you play it right once right <laughs> yeah after 500 takes eventually get it yeah so in actuality you're actually doing technically better practice than say you were spending seven hours practicing some part that you wanted to learn technically this is actually a better way because you're hearing it get better in that time frame, which I think is really important for a lot of guitar players and something that guitar players in general don't focus on enough that and also I think doing it and then coming back to it with fresh ears the next day because sometimes you can kind of get stuck you know tunnel vision you kind of get lost you know you kind of lose uh, sight of what you're actually trying to achieve so actually coming back to it you know after a couple of hours break you can suddenly play it sometimes like you know oh i can play it now after a little break oh uh, yeah that's the the brain catching up with the muscles <laughs> yeah even though i just play one note over time <laughs> That's true for mixing too, isn't it? If you go too long, eventually you start getting diminishing returns and actually start working backwards. There's like a sweet spot where I think you should stop. And I have to admit that it was really, really hard for me to like accept that. If you're thinking about that sweet spot, you know, like you know when it is, like you know when you're starting to suck. But (laughs) I think lots of musicians that are super driven, producers that are super driven, will just keep on going. And this is something that I encountered a lot, like with recording drummers, like even like the best drummers in the genre, like they are human, even though they don't sound human, they're human. And there's a point where they're just going to start sucking But they're so motivated, like they got that good because they're, you know, fucking motivated as hell. (laughs) And to be like, all right, dude, I think you should probably rest and we should do this tomorrow. It's actually a really hard conversation to have. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, it's I usually just start hearing, well, when I'm mixing anyway, I start EQing out way too much of the harsh or, you know, the treble high end kind of parts of the mix. I start taking out way too much of that. Now listen the next day, like, what the hell did I do to this? So... As long as you're not mixing too loud, then that definitely helps. Man, when we do nail the mix sometimes with some of the older mixers, like say 10 years older than me or something, dudes that are into their 50s, man, it's so loud sometimes. I can't believe it. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes I wonder if they're aware of how loud it is. Like, Yeah, probably not. That's a scary thing. (laughs) It's very scary. Yeah. Well, it's weird because I remember um, a mastering engineer, uh, he did our Tesseract's first album. He mastered the... Phil Silent album as well, actually, Hippie in Metropolis. So Hippie, yeah, yeah. I remember Amos telling me a story of them going to a live gig and Hippie just kind of wincing as soon as the band started to play. Just like, oh, my precious ears, oh God. And they immediately get to see Defenders out, which is kind of, kind of cool how it's different with Master Engineers. They just like, like everything quiet and must protect the hearing. You say that, but the first Monuments record was also mastered at Metropolis by Mazad Murad. Right. He does some of the Brainworks plugins. You've probably uh, seen yeah. some of his plugins, AL as well. Oh, those are good. You know, the the MS stuff that Brainworks puts out, That's that was in conjunction with him. Anyway, they had those floor-standing PMCs at Metropolis, you know, yeah, the ones that joins. cost like a hundred grand for a pair. And <laughs> it was louder than a gig in there when we mastered Gnosis. But only for a few seconds. You just got to test it just for a bit. Just crank it a little bit. Yeah. Let's go to 11. So I think it depends on the person, doesn't it? Like, I mean, I think if you know the two levels that you want to mix out, if you want to go louder, 
then that can sometimes make good judgments as well. Yeah, that's true. Somebody told me, and this is secondhand, so I don't know if it's true, but I don't have any reason to doubt it, that uh, you know, Andy Wallace, the, the legend mixer, that when he mixes, apparently he mixes super quiet, like yeah, quiet, quiet, quiet. And then when it's time to get the bass to sit with the kick, he turns it to like concert volume hmm. for like 60 seconds, Yeah, dials it, and then back to close to inaudible the rest of the time. Yeah, interesting. I have, well, I haven't done it probably that quiet, but I've tried like conversation level. So that's probably the kind of level most people are going to listen to music at anyway. I find that can be actually quite a good way of mixing it. But it's rem- remembering to do it. Again, discipline. There's another engineer yeah. as well that also mixes very quietly. It's Jay Rustin. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. He's great. Super, super quiet. If you're not familiar with Jay Rustin, he did Ammon Marth. He's done Stone Sour. Yeah, cool. Yeah, a bunch of others. He's a very, very good producer, engineer. I'd say he's criminally underrated. I think he's one of the very best in heavy music of this like time period. I would agree. Yeah, nice, nice. Yeah, like he doesn't get nearly enough credit for how good he is. That, that's my Jay Rustin rant. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys come from a generation of guitar players that's a little bit different than mine. Not a lot of people were recording. Like I'm one generation older than you guys. And recording was actually like a really weird thing. It was super uncommon. But I feel like everybody I know from your guys' circle, and not just the English groups, but the American ones too, like, you know, Misha and all of them, like you guys, it seems like recording was just part of how you guys did things. Is that accurate? Yeah. (laughs) I'd say that the main component that made it all possible was drum kit from hell. I think that was the beginning. It's probably the timing, wasn't it? Like we happened to be starting bands or getting into, you know, writing metal music at the same time that, yeah, Drum Kit from Hell came out. Yeah, I think that was the, because it was the first, the world's first multi-sampled drum kit. And before that, it was just crap sounding Really loops. bad samples. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then when that came out, it was like, ooh, and it's done by one of the best metal bands in the world. So that means it's we like, must oh be able God. to write metal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering this from both of you. So for me, it was like recording was this whole other thing. But I feel like for you guys, it's even though you started guitar first and then added recording, seems to me like it's almost like part of the deal with you guys. Am I just interpreting things? It definitely is now for me. I think it's kind of become, I'm almost kind of looking or trying to create a sound. You know, for example, for the next album, I'm trying to make a new sound, so to speak, without sounding hippie-ish while writing the music. Yeah, shaping the sound of the album, which involves lots of production work, I suppose, at the same time as trying to write the music. I also think that with the style of music that was kind of going on in the early 2000s, you know, it's referred to as the J word, which I don't really want to use (laughs) because I don't think it really describes it very well. But at the time, finding a drummer that could do what was in the mind of the guitar players was quite complex. It was almost introducing this sort of new wave of drummers at the same time as introducing the guitar player. So I think that having drum kit from hell made it possible for guitar players to program things that normal humans shouldn't be able to play. (laughs) And it pissed off all the drummers around the world. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously there were drummers that could do it, but they weren't really present in the metal genre. Like the sort of stylistic elements of it was more along the lines of like gospel and jazz. Yes, that's accurate. I can tell you guys that trying to find a drummer in the 90s that could play to a click was like 
<laughs> close to impossible. It just didn't exist in metal. And it wasn't till around 2004 or 2005 that it started to become more common. And now it's like rare for a drummer not to use a click in heavy music. Like they're the exceptions. Like nowadays, if a drummer doesn't use it, it's like, what the hell's wrong with that guy? But in the 90s and early 2000s, it was impossible to find anybody who could play anything. Like metal drummers were a fucking abysmal joke back then. <laughs> <laughs> like they've gotten a lot better. But then you have the, the, you have the weirdisms like Thomas Hawker from Meshuggah who played Chaosphere without a click. Yeah, really? And it is unbelievable. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah, but there's always freaks. Yeah. <laughs> there's always going to be a freak. You know, like, I think you can't judge the majority or, like, the big picture based on what a few freaks can do because <laughs> there's always going to be those types in any generation. Like, I feel that way about Jason Richardson's lead playing. It's just freakish. Like, it doesn't... I don't understand where that technical ability comes from. But the thing is, I've known him since he was a teenager. And he was always that good. And I just think some people are just... They're just born tapped in and it kind of doesn't matter what time period they live in. The Meshuggah dudes and that whole circle definitely count as that. I don't know if you guys check this out, but we had Meshuggah destroy, race, improve on Nail the Mix a few years ago. Yeah, I did see some of that. Did you get to check the tracks out? Future Breed Machine, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, it's a little They're nuts. It's crazy, aren't I? Yeah, that wasn't done to a click, I don't think. No. Have you seen the original videos of that recording session? It's like done. Bergstrand showed them to me. Oh, yeah. It's on like the, the smallest, shittiest desk you can imagine. <laughs> and it was just them standing in a room with them all looking higher than kites. <laughs> they probably were. <laughs> like, yeah, it's quite interesting, isn't it? That they were just that good. And at that time, they must have only been in their 20s. Dude, Daniel Bergstrand was 19 when he recorded that. Damn. What? <laughs> yeah, he was, nine, he was 19. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean by freak. Like, it's... Uh, Sweden's another thing as well. Something to Swedish water. <laughs> yeah. So what do you guys think about Sweden? Because I always say that there's something in the water, but then I've also toured over there and had, you know, the local openers, and they weren't any better than anywhere else. So... Like, I know a lot of really bad Swedish bands. It's just, <laughs> there also happen to be a lot of amazing ones. What do you guys think about that place? It's the holy grail of Meshuggah, so. <laughs> <laughs> there is a lot of good bands out of Sweden, but as you said, I think it's just anywhere. I think like what it's surprising is the fact that it's just this dark country. And when I say dark is that they have six months of no sun. Mm. So, I think that, you know, like, it's quite interesting because Sweden has good music from multiple different genres. It's not just focused on just the one. <laughs> you know, you have stuff like Catatonia that is like that melancholic metal. Then you have Meshuggah and obviously the other ones from that came from Meshuggah, like Humanity's Last Breath and Viljata. But then they go also to like black metal and then you've got Gothenburg metal that was also great. At the gates and stuff. Um, like In Flames. And so there's been multiple generations where there's been leading in the genres that have been created. Do you know what I mean? So I think it's like quite unique in that situation that it is that mm. it's just been able to sort of have a foothold where there's only 7 million people in the country, which is, if you think about it, the ratio of how much great music yeah, has true. come out of that place in comparison to say, sorry to put you on the spot here, AL America that has 360 million people. <laughs> yeah, I take that so personally. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm responsible for what every other American. Why not make him more bands, eh? <laughs> yeah, it's totally my fault because yeah. all Americans know each other. And so <laughs> if there aren't better bands, I got to do a better job. But I'm not sure I agree with like your uh, dark country thing, but you know, Siberia is pretty dark and it's not known for a prolific music scene. They might have some outside music there for you though, Al. I'm sure there's some great outsider music <laughs> over there. Do you guys believe that talent is actually a thing? Because I know some people don't. They just think everything is just hard work. But do you guys think that there's a such thing as talent? I feel that maybe... Some people just have a knack for things, but you've still got to put the time in. I guess you could say you could become talented if you practice enough, but maybe some people don't need to practice as much or put in less hours, so to speak. But I feel like some people will just have a knack for things more than others, perhaps. What do you think, Brent? I think it's kind of a mixture of both. And I think it's to do with the, the personality of the, of the actual individual. And when I say the personality, what I mean is there's two sides to that as well. One, are you focusing on the right things? Because obviously we you know see guitar players that have only been playing for three years and they're phenomenal. Mm. And I kind of think that maybe they've just focused on the right things from maybe an understanding of something else. And they've brought that understanding from a different scenario and worked it for their instrument but then there is some freakish people that can literally play guitar for like five minutes and write something that is insanely beautiful so it's kind of a mixture of both i don't think talent has anything to do with your personality in my opinion i mean you could be right but i think that that stuff like the choices you make and what you focus on, that's all secondary, but there's like no explanation for why like somebody like Prince got really good at music. You know, he lived in a terrible neighborhood, abusive household, was not really given the tools with which to get good at music. And yet he still did. And I know that you guys also know people who come from the strangest non-musical backgrounds and they just pick things up fast. I think it's more what you said, Ackle, that you just have a knack for things. And then, of course, what you do with it makes a difference in what results you get. But, you know, there's some people who practice way more than other people and are way focused on the right things who still don't get very far because they just don't have the talent for it, in my opinion. Yeah, that makes sense. It's a weird one. Yeah. I mean, do you guys find music to be easy or difficult. I'm asking you guys this because I look up to both of yours playing abilities and musical abilities and you guys make it look easy, but I know that you've obviously worked really, really hard, but to an outsider, you don't make it look hard. And I'm just curious, do you guys consider this something that came naturally to you or did you have to fight it? Well, here's an example. As a song I wrote about a year ago, I've been writing for weeks, just, you know, okay riffs, you know, chucking stuff out there. And I was trying to work on this one song, wasn't really going anywhere. And then in a space of about five minutes, 10 minutes, I came up with a riff, which was like instantly like, ah, that's going to work. There's a chorus. Five minutes later, I've got a verse. Basically, I've got a whole song laid out in about half an hour after I'd been spending weeks just trying to come up with a song. So I think there's something to be said with things just pop out of thin air sometimes. And if you try and force it, it doesn't always go that well. So when you're writing, do you kind of take that approach of getting through the bad stuff in order to get to the good stuff? Yeah, kind of, yeah. Just having the guitar in your hands, just kind of contradicting myself, but not forcing yourself to write, but just playing. And then eventually you'll find something that just kind of sparks and clicks of you. Yeah, you just have to go with it, basically. 
I guess there's a difference between forcing it and trying to do it. Maybe forcing it would be more like if you've got a really kind of mediocre idea and you're trying to turn that into a great song. True, yeah. I think that would be more forcing it. That's true. It's like what Aqua was saying, you can't really force it, but then you get the spark of like three or four notes and it might not even necessarily be in a rhythmic placement. It could be something completely separate from what you've just been working on all day. Exactly. And you'll play something completely different and go, oh, and you'll just trail off, go on a completely different tangent. And it's worth, I think it's worth following that because you can end up with something really cool sometimes or not, but you never know. <laughs> <laughs> I think also like, yeah, you know, you might get that spark of three or four notes, but I also think that you should record everything that comes out while you're in that situation. Because if you think about it in this particular situation, in this moment of time, those four notes that you've played around with for half an hour might not really sound particularly interesting to you at that point, but you might return to it like a week six months, a year down the line, and it might spark off the rest of the song. And then you actually get rid of that bit from your song, but it made everything else in that song happen. No, definitely. That makes sense. Kind of like, you know, when you're walking down the street and you hear like someone tapping on something in a particular rhythm <laughs> and then you think, oh, that sounds really cool over this, 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 and this. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I think it's, I think, yeah, it's a mixture of not forcing it, but just waiting for the right moment as well. I think time plays a big part of it. Mm. I know that's like a really hippie-ish way. Just time logged doing it? No, not time logged doing it. Like just sometimes like you just have to allow the moment to sort of come to fruition, if that makes sense. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like I find that maybe if you have a scenario to write to, or maybe in this particular moment, you might be feeling something different than you did half an hour ago or something. There's so many weirdisms to writing that I think it's completely personal to every individual as well. It's true. Yeah. But the common denominator is sitting down to do it. (laughs) I just had Mick Gordon on the URM podcast and he said something really interesting about writing. He said, amateurs wait for inspiration and pros just get it done. And then I remember that Stephen King or some famous author, I think it was Stephen King, said something very, very similar. The only thing that matters is sitting down to write every single day. I'd agree with that. That's just what he does, whether it's a paragraph or two pages or crap or great. (laughs) He just sits down and he does it and he doesn't judge himself while he's doing it. Like It's true, yeah. Yeah, like he's not going to sit there and be like, I suck. That's the hard bit, I think, because sometimes I can spend a whole day, you know, 12 hours, 14 hours in a day just writing, noodling around with ideas. And then at the end of the day or the next morning, like, God, that's rubbish. But there might be a little something there or the the next day you do it, it might lead somewhere. You know, so I definitely agree with that. They just got to just do it. And again, I guess that goes down to discipline because you might think of having a day of recording for 12 hours and not really getting anything productive out of it. It can be a little bit like, ugh, you know, push you down a little bit. But when it goes well, it's just like, ah, there's a motivation boost you wanted. I read this really interesting book called Where Good Ideas Come From. It's actually maybe the best book I've ever read about creativity. It brings up this idea that there's this thing called the adjacent possible, which is all good ideas come from one idea that's adjacent to your current idea put together, but that if you didn't have the two adjacent ideas created independently of each other, you'd never be able to merge them. Like they wouldn't be able to have idea sex basically. (laughs) And he kind of lays it out pretty scientifically, but that in his opinion, and it makes a lot of sense that that's where the good stuff comes from. So it's almost like stepping stones. Yeah. Stepping stones. Exactly. When you're working on something for 12 hours and you don't think you're getting somewhere, I still think you're creating a bunch of adjacent possibles so that eventually 
at some point, then it could be that day, it could be the next day or a month later, like Brown just said, you'll come up with the other idea that somehow creates that spark. That makes sense, definitely. It's actually kind of what you were just saying, actually, Akul, about how you wrote that, you were working on that thing for ages. And then all of a sudden you had a song in half an hour. That was kind of the adjacent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All kind of linked up. It probably wouldn't have just happened if you had not been writing for those few weeks in advance. Yeah, because the guitars are in my hand. I was in the flow, you know, state of flow, I suppose. But then that contradicts the talent versus, <laughs> you know, hard work. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. Because uh, the talent is like that knack. Like the fact that he saw that adjacent possible and that his brain connected those dots and then created that next idea. That's the talent. An untalented person might put the same amount of work and still come up with all those adjacent possible ideas, but just not connect the dots. Mm. Do you think to a degree as well, Ackle, that it's uh, knowing when to abandon it? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> you know, when you've worked on something for too long. This song is crap. <laughs> yeah, maybe not even that way, but the other way as well, when you've got something good. It's part of like understanding. Well, knowing when to be done with it, be finished with it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's hard as well. Yeah. I could say that that is kind of like the middle ground between the talent and the working hard on something. It's understanding that what you, exactly what you're looking for. Yeah, you can over polish things, I suppose, as well. It goes both ways. I know that AL is probably not going to agree with me with that. <laughs> on what? <laughs> on, um, you know, saying like the talent versus, you know, working hard on something. It's also the learning of what, you know, you think sounds good. Because ultimately it's just opinions, isn't it? No, I, I do agree with that. The, the thing is... I think talent is like the fuel that powers that whole engine you're describing. Uh, without the talent, you could do all those things you were talking about. Like think about when the right time to drop a song is, put in all the work, do all that stuff. But then if it doesn't have that fuel, basically, or the ability to connect dots, it's all going to be for shit. But everything you're describing, like developing your tastes, understanding when to drop an idea, like knowing what you're looking for. Those are things that you add onto talent. So I don't think that it contradicts it. Like I think talent alone is not enough. I've actually known, and I'm sure you guys have too, people who have a ton of talent, but they don't do the work and then they don't ever accomplish any of their musical aspirations because you can't survive on talent alone. Like you got to actually make things happen in the real world. I'm sure you've met people like that. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, the two most talented musicians I've ever met went nowhere. They were my roommates at Berkeley. I mean, maybe I've met a couple of people more talented, but these guys are among like the top five that I've ever met in my entire career. Like they were so musically gifted. It was ridiculous. They could play with any band and any style. They made metal, but like they could sit in with a jazz band. They could do anything they wanted, transcribe anything by ear, like they could sing, they could play drums, they could do everything, but they never worked at it and just did a ton of drugs and <laughs> oh, none of their projects ever came to fruition. And last I checked, one works at a hardware store. Nothing against people who work at a hardware store, but like oh, yeah. the dude had aspirations to do something with music and had all the... Yeah, it's a shame, yeah. Yeah, he had all the equipment upstairs to do it, but without that work, it's not going to move. Yeah, I know a couple of people like that, like a similar kind of story. So it's, it's a shame, yeah. What would you prefer to work with? Somebody who is mega talented, but not as work inclined and not as good of a work ethic, or someone who's like maybe 15% less talented, 
but has the best work ethic you've ever seen? That's a tough one. Depends if you're trying to do a whole album or start a band together, or if it's like one song or a couple of songs, I suppose. Okay, so what what would it be for each one of those scenarios? Well, if, it, <laughs> if you're only doing one song or a couple of songs, then yeah, get that amazing greatness out of them and just try and get one good song with them. But if you're going to be, you know, forging a career with, you know, want to do a band and do albums and albums worth of material, then might have to uh, settle for less. <laughs> settle for less so that the long run works out. Yeah, because otherwise you're not going to, well, for what you were alluding to before, you're not going to get anywhere otherwise, are you? Potentially. What do you think keeps bands together after the amount of years that you've been at it, for instance? Because you know how some bands seem like they like they have all the promise in the world, but then break up after a year on the road or something? The smell of each other's farts in the tour bus. <laughs> you just love the smell? Yeah, I don't know. It's a genetic predisposition <laughs> to enjoy your bandmates' farts. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, more than the farts, it's the company, isn't it? Yeah. You're married to... Like a bunch of other dudes. That's true. I've said that before. Like I've tested that a lot. It's basically like being married to having five girlfriends or something. <laughs> I'm trying to manage that. But yeah, you, so you have to be able to deal with these people in a confined space for extended periods of time at your most tired state. <laughs> yeah, right. After no sleep for days and days. Yeah, in every single situation that you can understand, whether you're hungover, whether you're drunk, <laughs> whether you're having a bad day, you have to be able to deal with these people. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, how did you manage to find people to deal with that? Well, we did some gigs with Fell Silent, and then I found Tesseract, <laughs> which is kind of fun. Can you tell us a little bit about Fell Silent? I'm wondering for both of you, what was your vision for that band? Well, I'll start on this one because I joined. So okay. technically it wasn't my vision to begin with. I joined as a second guitar player after they all saw my sugar, actually, funnily enough. <laughs> so I'll let Ackle answer his vision. <laughs> well, I guess in a way similar to Brown, like I joined them before Fell Silent. It was called Temperamental and they were... Uh, yeah, four piece. And they were quite, I guess, new metal league maybe, because they, they started in like the late 90s or the early 2000s or something. And I think they kind of semi-split up. So I joined, tried to take them in a sugary direction, for lack of a better word. Trying to do something heavy, because I hadn't really had a chance uh, or an opportunity to be in a heavy band. I'd always been in kind of rock bands, but never a proper heavy band with a, a really tight drummer. So in a simplistic vision, it was just being able to do tight, heavy music for me personally, I think. And then it kind of grew from there. And that's the thing. Noddy was actually still, I would say, one of the tightest drummers I've heard. Yeah, he sounds great. He's amazing. Really tight drummer. He plays in Heart of a Coward now. Were you guys aware back then that like your circle of peers and each other would kind of become foundational to this new movement in heavy music? Like including Misha as well. Was anybody in the circle like talking about that or was everyone just trying to do badass stuff? I don't think so. Well, for me personally, it was just kind of in enjoying it and just trying to write music and kind of learning, really, I think, in a way. The thing is, you know, that this sort of style of genre, firstly, I want to say that I wouldn't actually be doing it if it wasn't for Ackle. Because <laughs> oh. it was it was Ackle that I heard that was kind of doing this new sound. It was like verging on new metal, but it had its own twist, obviously being that it was rhythmically quite complex. All over the place. 
Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think that's actually why the like the elite metal people did not accept it at first was because of the new metal element. Now you know, now they totally accept it. But I actually think that that new metal twist is why it took so long for the traditional metal crowd to adopt it. But I actually think is what set it apart and made it cool. And yeah, I, I basically said I wouldn't be doing this style of music. But I mean, in the beginning, obviously there was a, a Mastriga forum that was inhabited by quite a lot of people that are about today, like, uh, and Harmony Central Forum as well. So Harmony Central, um, I remember meeting Alex Wade on there, who plays guitar for Whitechapel. Yep. Um, Keith Merrow. Paul Ortiz, Chimp Spanner. Chimp Spanner. Uh, Misha was also on the Mastriga Forum. Are we talking about the Andy Sneed Forum right now? No. No, I did use that a little bit. And obviously, um, oh, that mastering engineer, Ermin, I can't really say Ermin, yeah. Yeah. Erman Hamadovic. That's right. He was on there as well. Yeah, because the Andy Sneed Forum, I guess Keith was on that. Misha was on that. I've had maybe like 100 people on the URM podcast who came from the Andy Sneed Forum, which was also on Ultimate Metal. Seems like Ultimate Metal spawned everything. No, the, the Mashuga Forum was its own separate thing. Oh, okay. For sure. But Misha obviously did sevenstring.org as well, Harmony Central, which I was also part of. But it was basically that forum culture. It wasn't just maybe one particular forum. It was before Facebook, maybe even MySpace even. Or probably the same kind of time. Yeah, MySpace days. Yeah, that's how I kind of grew, you know, got my name out there, essentially, I suppose. Like, oh, check out this little idea I did. It kind of all spawned from there. I mean, well, with Tesseract, at least. Did you find that people were immediately accepting of it? Yeah, I think so, because, well, generally, I think, you know, I got, like, positive vibes from it, which probably helped reinforce me wanting to do more, maybe. Not that I was looking for admiration, but, you know, just... So uh, what I'm doing isn't completely shit, but yeah. It helps. How did Tesseract come about in the first place? I was obviously writing for Fell Silent at the time, and I guess the simple answer is it was the overly complicated stuff, which the drummer couldn't play. Sorry, Noddy, love you. <laughs> but you could, <laughs> could play easily now, though. It's just, I think it was more, I guess, going back to a mindset thing. I remember when we used to have jams of Fell Silent, and he'd be throwing drumsticks around the room. But if you presented it to him now, he'd be able to play easily. So it's probably down to a mindset thing. And it was also the fact that he didn't play to a metronome as well. Yeah, yeah, which you can do easily now. So, yeah, I guess that goes back to the whole just putting time in and mindset kind of thing. And also product of the time period. This is still pretty rare back then for a drummer to play to a click. Yes, yeah. Like, did you know that you were looking for something more technical? Was that like a conscious thought in your mind? At the time-ish, or at least being having the option to be able to do it, maybe. I feel like I'm getting less technical now with the newer material, kind of mellowing out, getting old. Not as, The material's not as aggressive. But yeah, I definitely think it was for the time. I think that that's a product of youth in a way. Yeah. Yeah, like super technical stuff appeals to people, I think, in their first five, ten years of playing. That's true. It's usually right after they've discovered how to play technically, and they put so much time into it that, it reflects in their playing a lot. And so it's kind of, you know, what they're focusing on or what they just focused on for like five years in their bedroom, 12 hours a day, it's going to translate. But then I think as you mature, the technical side just becomes part of your toolbox, but not like the main focus. 
you're able to maybe create better actual music overall. Yeah, hundred percent. I'd say that's that's pretty evident even with the tech bands. I mean, if you listen to the Dillinger Escape Plan, for example, and calculating infinity and how all over the place it was, and then obviously you fast forward that timeline to uh, Black Bubblegum as an example of a song, which is a lot more, I would say, rock based. Is that the more melodic, poppy kind of sounding album? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it's that's one I like. <laughs> I love all of Dillinger stuff. But yeah, <laughs> and just like even just seeing that, that they yeah definitely after that point they were definitely still technical as fuck and somehow still trying to break people's faces with their guitars but (laughs) they did introduce this style which was definitely more pop orientated yeah the album i guess was um ioworks and then you had option paralysis as well and they had songs on them which you know i think is the product of what al was saying was basically just when you mature you realize that Firstly, when you go up on stage and you have to play this technical stuff, you realize that you can't be bothered (laughs) anymore. (laughs) Um, And then you're also wanting to write something that is enjoyable to listen to, not just at a certain particular time. And I guess giving it dynamics perhaps as well. Like if you're just doing complicated stuff all the time, it just gets a bit samey. It gets a bit bland. But if you're mixing it up with for lack of a better word, simpler stuff or more melodic stuff, catchy stuff, and then just throwing a bit of noodly-noodly, it just gives it some dynamics, I think. It's not like you can't do the technical stuff. For sure. I think you kind of mastered it, and as an artist, if you don't move on, like if you don't add new things, then what are you doing? You just, <laughs> we, all, we all know those guitar players who mastered technical playing and never moved on from there, and you know they have careers that are, some of them have like 20-year-long careers, but if you listen to the stuff they're doing now or 2005, it's completely interchangeable minus the recording quality. Yeah. Would you also say that to a degree that we get to this level of complexity, but at the same time, we're just trying to keep that complexity level and make it more listenable? Because when I listen to the new Tesseract record, it sounds... Like, it's really enjoyable to listen to, but then when I try and analyze it, it sounds like it's completely hard as fuck to play, excuse my language, (laughs) in terms of the actual, like, underlying groove of the song, like something like King, for example, it's quite a unique groove. So maybe the transition between what we're considering more complex is the fact that it's just shifted to another part of the song, or the playing, maybe. I mean, the actual guitar parts are pretty easy, but I guess it maybe just comes down to knowing the song in terms of just listening to it not knowing how to play it but just knowing how a song any song goes i think goes a long way you know like jeff buckley for example you probably just sing the guitar melody really easily i think that goes a long way for being able to learn a song when you're writing now or learning a song is there like a amount of time that it generally takes that's the thing when i've written a song i probably once it's done i'll kind of be done with it and i will try not to listen to it for months or years even until it comes to touring and i've got a open up the files and remember how to play all the parts because I never write anything down. I don't have guitar <laughs> or anything like that. So I tend to have to relearn everything by ear. I don't know if you do do it that way as well, Brown, or if you, use, if you write things down. I usually ask Ollie to work out the parts I can't <laughs> remember because he's got a really good ear for it. Okay. Whereas like, I tend to do it for some reason a fifth up. I'm one of those guys. <laughs> what, when you relearn it? You, you relearn it a fifth up? 
by accident. Uh, you know, okay. how does that work? I don't know. Just my ear goes to that. Interesting. So there's times when it will be like a fifth up and I'm playing one wrong note in the entire sequence and it'll be a fifth up. And I'm like, why did I think that that sounded good? <laughs> and it's probably just because it made the chord. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I do the same thing. I don't write anything down. But one thing I did start to do is film everything like on a phone. So at least it gives me a ballpark of where it is. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. And obviously now we have the technology to do that. If you still don't want to get involved in Guitar Pro, and I completely understand why you wouldn't want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say that I do the same thing as what you do. Just write and then try and remember it when it comes to recording it again. How do you keep track of what you filmed? Like if you're writing all that huge amount of music and not deleting everything... I mean, not deleting things you don't use, like you keep everything. How do you keep track of what video goes to what audio? Yeah, I couldn't be bothered with that. <laughs> see, that's the thing, you see. I've only just started doing it, so I haven't worked out the particulars of that situation yet. All I know is that it's probably going to be when I forget a part, then I can just scroll through my phone and try and remember a sort of date that it was recorded at. Yeah, so I've done that for a couple of riffs that I've written in the last year. That's one thing I've started doing probably, well, for a few years now is instead of naming my ideas like Rainbow Unicorn Idea 5 or something like that, I'll, all my project files are now just called May 15th or April 24th. So then if I, if I do need to go back and find the project file, it is actually really easy to go back and find it and open it up and relearn the thing. Dating things in the file system is one of the most breakthrough things I ever started doing. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, sounds like a geeky, boring thing, but it, it does make a big difference. It's not. Once you've lost things that you wrote because you were disorganized, little things like that will change everything. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, technically the date's already always been there. You know, the date that the mp3 file was exported and you look for the closest yeah but then you've got to right click it then click properties <laughs> <laughs> saving vital seconds here it is saving seconds <laughs> i guess yeah man i think saving seconds especially when mixing like saving seconds counts for a lot over the span of an album that's true yeah yeah i did the math on it once i figured out that by optimizing my workflow considerably i saved three weeks a year hmm. That's crazy. Three, Three weeks, weeks of just sitting there moving the mouse. <laughs> yeah, right. No, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, I've tried to do little things like that, actually, just like macros for exporting masters and things like that. So I just press a button and it will go to the next track and export it and put the file name in for me and stuff. That's wise. Do you have any sort of like writing template or do you start from scratch every time? No, I generally have like a template and it'll probably last me a few months. So I'll have a, a new mix that I'm liking. So I'll write with that. And I'll use that for the, you know, the foreseeable future sort of thing until I get bored of the mix and go, eh, I'd start a new mix just to keep things fresh so you don't get bored of the sound, so to speak. And then I might have a pot of 10 songs and I'll probably just pick the mix I like the most and then base the whole album around that mix-ish. When you are sitting down to write and you load up that mix, what, what kind of stuff is in there? Like, is it like routing or... Yeah, the main thing with some kind of drum sound, even if it's not 100% what I'm going for, as long as there's something I can you know, nod your head to, you know, kind of... 80% there kind of drum sound that I want. Drum sound's the main thing. I feel like my bass tone's always changing, so that's a bit tricky, that one. Yeah, just mainly the drum sound and then having my master bus is pretty easy, pretty simple, but I like to have like a limiter and a compressor and on the mix bus as I'm writing just for, you know, a bit of energy really just to bang your head to it and then worry about it, mixing it later on. Do you find that uh, having it sound relatively badass while you're writing helps? A little bit. So I'll try and go halfway. It's good to have it kind of, you want it to sound exciting so you can kind of get into it, 
because you don't want to write something that's just sounding rubbish because it's just going to be not inspiring for you. But then I might turn the last limiter on or some kind of exciter at the end when I'm done with the idea just to give that a little that little nudge to go, oh yeah, that, that, that's a good idea. I like that. <laughs> Do you think there's the possibility of tricking yourself sometimes if it sounds too good while you're writing? Like you get carried away with how awesome a guitar sounds and... Yeah, thinking about it, that's recently, probably the past year or so, I've just been trying to write guitar riffs, not to drums, or at least the you know the primary part of it. Because I think before I was trying trying to do everything at the same time, which can work and it works well. But I've been trying to do it just the guitar part by itself, record that, and then put drums to that, and then we re- record everything and refine things. So make sure that the guitar part kind of holds its own on its own as a piece of music for some of the parts, at least. You know, I always found that that was better honestly, because if you're just listening to a guitar and it speaks to you, like it's got like a really evident structure and in it in and of itself is heavy and catchy and good, then you're just making it better when you add drums. But if you're relying on drums in order to make it good, it might not be that great. Sometimes it can work, but it can for sure. Sometimes it depends though, because that's kind of how I used to do it. I'd have like a phrase, like, you know, a bar or two bars of a riff. But then I might develop what would come, because, you know, it's, you've got the weird rhythms going on. I might have to kind of write the drums at the same time just to get the feel of the riff right, which I think sometimes still applies, at least for this style of music. It's a tricky one. But it's been trying to mix it up a little bit and approach it differently. So, uh, speaking of rhythm playing, uh, in my opinion, rhythm is like, I mean, it's a lot of people's opinion, but rhythm is the most foundational skill that a guitar player can have. But I think a lot of people jump straight into shredding uh, rather than really developing the rhythm. Can you talk a little bit about how you developed your right hand? <laughs> Beg your pardon? <laughs> <laughs> just be honest. Yeah, well, I was. Um, <laughs> I started off, you know, when I was a kid with just noodling around trying to play Metallica solos and Hendrix solos, and that's great, and Pink Floyd solos and stuff, but I did get bored of it quite quickly. I think at the same time, like we were saying earlier, once I got into recording and, you know, learned to play to a click, to a metronome, and realized, you know, I was loose. I tried to tighten up and got tighter at that. That's when I started to... I just I got bored of lead playing, really, and just got way more focused and enjoyment from you know, playing tightly and making things sound, you know, polished and together, I suppose. And that's why Tesseract probably doesn't have that many solos or very few lead parts on it nowadays. It's interesting. People, I feel like they think rhythm is boring and solos are what's interesting, but I'm with you. I think that it's way more interesting to make... I think... Didn't you post about that on Facebook the other day, actually? I saw, yeah. Yeah, I did. I've felt like this for a long time. We all know my stand on that. I think that it's a lot harder to make a badass riff sound awesome and feel awesome than to play a solo. And, and I mean, obviously there's some solos that are fucking hard, but actually making a guitar sound great and feel great is really, really hard. It's obviously going to be down to personal preference, but yeah, I do agree with you. I just think I get way more enjoyment, personally, just from songwriting or yeah creating riffs you know the rhythm side of it and that might call for a lead part but again for me personally it's usually just a like a melody like something you could just sing to essentially i think when it comes to rhythm versus lead as well is that like 90 percent of the time the song isn't going to have that guitar solo unless it's like something like vi or satriani but then as you say the lead part is more based on a melodic sort of vocal sort of sound at that point. So that to me doesn't really necessarily constitute as a lead guitar. 
they can be put under rhythm because it's a melody as opposed to someone just playing 10,000 notes in a second just to show off. Those guys are also freaks. Yeah. Those guys also <laughs> count in the freak category. <laughs> and it's probably why I still gravitate towards listening to those guitar players as well because there's something really vocal about the melodies in which they produce as opposed to just shredding their face off thinking that that is what people want to hear <laughs> immediately, immediately. Look how fast I can go, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember Homestar Runner? That was it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that's what did it for me. I saw that video and thought, oh, God. Yeah, solos are horrible. <laughs> you know what? Actually, those Homestar Runner videos, I think a lot of people started to see solos as cheesy because of those videos. <laughs> I know I did. I did kind of. <laughs> yeah, definitely for me. But there are still some great lead parts. Of we course. can't deny that. I mean, for me, it's only like, it's David Gilmour I'm always going to be listening to me personally he's not a meddler he's just a soulful he sings through it yeah totally exactly yeah when i made that facebook post i think a lot of people thought that i was bashing solos as a whole which i wasn't there's incredible solos out there and incredible lead players and people would bring up all the best lead players in the world and be like what about this guy and what about that guy and it's like well those dudes are not who i'm talking about actually you can name me maybe a hundred people who write great solos maybe 150, but there's like 50,000 more. It's when people do it for the sake of it, basically, but for no, you know, actual musical value. They write the song because they want to play a solo. Now that is the kind of person that I think AL is talking about. <laughs> and they're not necessarily great at playing solos either. Look at me, guys. Me. <laughs> <laughs> Have you guys ever played with that type of player before? Me. I was that guy. Yeah, Brown, yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I had a, a Switch I sort had of, no idea. Yeah, dude, like, <laughs> there's a video somewhere. I'm so glad that it's not on the internet of me playing live with my teeth. And I really hope to God that that evidence has been destroyed. Yeah, how old are you then, though? <laughs> you just launched a search party for it by saying that. <laughs> that will never happen. No one will ever find it because there's only one other person that I know of that has the video. And I'm pretty sure that at this point, it's probably gone missing or destroyed. And I'm hoping that it is. <laughs> I had no idea that you were a lead guitar player. Yeah, I was really into it until actually I met Ackle. That was kind of the... Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I ruined everything. <laughs> no, it was like, uh, well, it was it was just a bit before you, actually. It was, um, so Ackle used to play in a band called Mikor Barish, which yeah, I guess yeah. we'll talk about in a minute, which was pre-Fell Silent. Mm. And, um, <laughs> and he was in a, he was in the, he was in that band with a drummer called Luke, who mm. uh, went to the same school as me. No um, last name, just Luke. Luke McDonald, actually. Yeah. Oh, okay. So he did all of the artwork that is at the Crawford Arms in Milton Keynes. It's the venue there. He is an artist and he's very good. He does a lot of murals, like uh, big pieces. Yeah, he's doing great. Yeah. Yeah, he's doing really good. I was also in a band with him as well because we went to the same school and I was definitely a lead guitar player at the point. <laughs> what happened? Dude, people don't know you as a lead guitar player. They know you as like the rhythm master. Like, Did you get bored of it? The lead playing? Yeah. What happened? I got psoriasis on my hands. Oh, okay. I had to think of different ways to be able to play my instrument. So this was just before I met Ackle. How did psoriasis affect your lead playing? It used to make my hands bleed and tear to shreds. That was my pathway. And I'm, I'm quite grateful now for that happening. And then it was sort of reinforced by being introduced to a few bands by Ackles drummer and Mikor Barish, who introduced me to Meshuggah. 
Man, it's so interesting how sometimes these physical ailments are a blessing in disguise, like Tony Iommi getting his fingers chopped off, therefore detuning the guitar. Oh, is that why he detuned his guitar? Interesting. Yeah, it's because he was working in a factory or something like that, and he cut off the tips of his fingers in an accident. That happened to Meshuggah as well, didn't it? To Frederick, yeah, Frederick. Did it? And to uh, yeah. Thomas, I think, as well. They both got their hands cut off? Uh, so that's the secret. <laughs> you need to cut your fingers off, then you then you get good. <laughs> Yeah, if there was any valuable tip in this <laughs> podcast that new players can, uh, can learn from, it's a cut off your limbs. <laughs> no, but but yeah, Tony Iommi, he detuned because he couldn't physically play. So that whole, like, I mean, I know it's only a half step, but that's what started this whole thing. Slackened it off. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And for me, I used to be all about lead playing, and then I got... Like I hurt myself and had to switch my focus to songwriting and stuff like that. And it was one of, I was really, really bummed about it. It was like when I was 18, I was super bummed because I couldn't play more than two hours without burning pain and nothing helped, but it's like the best thing that ever happened because songwriting is what gave me a career, not soloing. Exactly. So yeah, like it's weird how sometimes that shit happens to people and they let it define them. And sometimes people just use it, something like that will happen, and they'll just redefine how they approach something, and it'll lead to something even better. Yeah. It's understanding the decisions, I guess, like the curves in life, the curves that life gives you, so to speak. Were you bummed at all, like when you couldn't do it anymore because of blood? To a degree, yeah, but then I heard my sugar, and it was like, oh, this band is sick. <laughs> I can play one note and make it sound good. <laughs> it really was that yeah so the first time that we saw Meshuggah Miracle um, we were actually at the same gig the story yeah. yeah exactly yeah the Mean Fiddler which is obviously now no longer exists may it rest in peace I've played there you've played there yeah yeah we cool. played there as well we, in fact I think we played 2007 I believe we played the year after and it would have been the last show there I think the one that we did because it was with Enter Shikari that's all right. Yeah. But yeah, so we saw him there 2004 and uh, it kind of just changed everything. I remember the sensation of like, you know, getting home and being like, ah, oh, I guess I'll quit now. Just because it was just this, uh, we were only like 18 at the time. So it was this feeling of awe, like, oh my God, how can they be that good? Or how can I become that good or get close to it? You know, production wise, sound wise, playing wise. What crazy is, is if you listen to them at that gig and now listen to them now, they're somehow even better. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of weird. Even at that point in time that we saw them, we thought they were the best thing in the world. And even now, 20 years later, I'm still like, how are they that good? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Which I guess kind of brings me on to your old band, Dackle, Mikor Barish. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's where it all started, I guess. A completely different sound to Meshuggah, which obviously took over with your... Uh, I guess that's kind of insulting, but Meshuggah played a yeah, huge part on your inspiration for, for Tesseract, Fels Island and stuff like that. So well, Exactly, yeah. Wouldn't be here without Meshuggah, really. Talk about Mikor Barish. <laughs> Mikor Barish was the uh, the Rocky band that I had before Fels Island. I, mean, I must have been 15, 16, so it was before I'd even heard of Meshuggah. It was probably more kind of like The Doors on speed I suppose it's a distorted mess and that was when I was into solos but kind of doing more Jimmy Page style solos it was pretty messy but just look at me playing the pentatonic scale over and over <laughs> <laughs> but it was fun though that was with friends that was with Luke as well and then I had my sugar I just got way interested into the rhythm side of playing 
That's when I joined Fell Silent and we started doing the heavier stuff. If anyone wants to check out me called Barish, there are some videos available on the old YouTube and I actually listened to them the other yeah, day yeah, just yeah, before. Be <laughs> 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 yeah, I just want to see me in a hippie tie-dye t-shirt playing the pentatonic scale over and over. How did you guys, and I mean Monuments and Tesseract or Fell Silent, how did you guys manage to incorporate the Meshuggah thing without ripping them off? And the reason I'm asking is because I'm sure you remember that in that time period, there were like 800 Meshuggah clones, but here and there, there were bands that took it and did something unique with that element. I guess it's just trying to be, stay inspired by or influenced by, but trying to put your own Not rip it off. Yeah. We still have rip-off moments, but... In 2004, there was no bands doing it. There was, I think, maybe two that I can remember of. One or two, that's true, yeah. Tangent was one. It was a new thing. Tangent Fragments or something? Fragments, is that one? Yeah, Fragments, but they actually recorded with Frederick Thornton right. and got so Frederick cheating. to solo on it. <laughs> it was a new thing. The copycat bands, in my opinion, didn't really start happening until 2009, 2010. And I think that the real catalyst for it was the release of periphery one yeah the periphery first album was kind of the beginning of it in 2010 yeah i'd say that's when we really saw the influx of it i mean when did uh, when did the first tesseract album come out 2011 or was it 2012 well dp came out in 2010 but yeah the album's out in 2011 that's right yeah yeah so yeah it was around that time period when you started hearing the clones i think yeah. al rather than 2004 because i literally cannot remember playing with one single band actually there was one maybe two but they were really really far in between the only real bands that i would say at the time that were kind of doing the rhythmic displacement stuff was candiria nemic God, i forgot about them yeah soil work maybe to a degree but i still wouldn't say it was and then uh finally sixth who i consider the daddies of it in the england anyway yeah although I, for some reason i don't lump them in sorry the j word the gen world though even though they... It's funny that you said the people... J word. You forgot the D. Yeah, <laughs> like, like a big D at the start of that. But I call it... <laughs> but yeah, I don't lump Sixth into that word either because I, to me, J, uh, Sixth aren't that band. But then again, I don't really see Candiria as that band or, I, I mean, with that word, I don't see any, like, tell me how Periphery and Tesseract sound the same. They don't. Yeah, they're very different. None of your bands sound the same. How can you lump that into one one word? <laughs> If you're into metal or gent or whatever, then yeah, it's, they sound very different. I guess to someone who's not into this style of music, they're going to be like, you know, you two sound exactly the same. So I guess it depends on your perspective. Did you feel like some of the criticism was unwarranted? I felt like that because I remember, like I never played in a gent band, but I remember when it came out, I thought it was badass that... Yeah, it was a new thing, yeah. It was the new thing and suddenly metal players had their shit together, <laughs> which for me, one of the biggest frustrations from one generation earlier was a uh, one generation of metal earlier is that so few people had their shit together. They were just busy getting drunk and stoned all the time. Yeah. And some were better than others. I mean, like you have some fucking game changers from that generation, like Gojira or something, but again, they're freaks. They're total yeah. freaks. Like <laughs> By and large, the mid 2000s era bands kind of were not that great and there was still a lot of like what we said earlier people who couldn't play to clicks and just a lot of just slop and then suddenly gent comes around and metal musicians are like they're good you can tell that they're like serious musicians and they know how to use technology i, th I think it was fucking awesome and i i felt like it was the one thing that was kind of 
propelling the genre forward. And I know that there were copycats, but there's always going to be copycats. So I felt like a lot of the criticism of the style was unwarranted. I think maybe it's just a lot of that kind of band now. And maybe me and Brown were somewhat lucky in that we were kind of, you know, doing it early on. First. Yeah. As I said, again... I wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't for Ackle. I want to make that abundantly clear. No, that's very <laughs> sweet. You'd still be doing something similar, I'm sure. Yeah, it's just that I remember, I remember showing up to Ackle, like when I first met Ackle and just hearing, it wasn't necessarily the rhythmic element that actually sort of latched me onto the whole thing, actually. Next, if you listen to it now, it'd be really loose, like those original ideas <laughs> I was doing like 15 years ago or something. So, yeah. It was actually the merging of two different sounds that really interests me, and it sort of brings me on to another question, which is obviously there's this clean sound that's referred to as Milton oh, Cleans. Yeah. Didn't Mike Mannion come out with that? Time. No, it was. It's been around for a long, long time. It might have been Mike. What does that mean? I've never heard of that. It's You've never heard Milton Cleans. Glass. Oh, oh, that bing, sound. Bing, bing. Yeah, I, I know what you're talking. Is it the the that axe effects clean tone? No, 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 no. No. Podic D. Oh, okay. Well, technically, before that as well, because Apple was doing that kind of clean sound with the Pod Pro 2.0 or even the 1.0. I'm not sure which one you had, Apple. Yeah, the Pro. A lot of people ripped that sound off. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I did. <laughs> that became like the, the clean sound of a generation, kind of. I guess it's fair to say I was probably kind of dabbling with that kind of sound in um in Michael Barish days and fell silent. And it kind of looking at it, like you were saying the merging of two sounds, I think part of it was kind of the Michael Barishy melodic, plinky-plonky kind of stuff, and then the heavy metal kind of stuff underneath it. But it was also like where the influences came from, because when I listen to that clean sound, it kind of brings me back to Gilmore a little bit. It's just a little bit more refined. Like it's got that delay and reverb and that really big epic spaciness to it. I guess the liquid kind of feeling of Tesseract, you know, how everything is just so... It's more artificial sounding, I suppose. Can I call it sterile, but in a good way. I don't mean sterile in a bad way, but but compared to a Gilmore's kind of clean sound. But that was the kind of floaty sound I was going for. Like, shone on you crazy diamond, that intro. Exactly. Yeah. That's kind of like what I hear when I hear it. And it's like, that's kind of what interested me in that sound. It was like mixing this really, really disgusting heavy rhythm tone. But then you have this like really pretty, almost ethereal, <laughs> clean sound over the top. And it was like, it wasn't necessarily that it was just metal. It was like the merging of two completely different sounds. And that's kind of what made me fall in love with it at the start. Sure. It was, no, it was that. And that was like, yeah, so like you basically merged two genres, which is how new genres are defined in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's exactly what I was talking about earlier from that ideas book about adjacent possible. That's like an exact example of it. You take two totally distinct things and create a whole new pathway based on that. Completely unconsciously. <laughs> it's like your tastes blending. Definitely. And, and we can see that throughout like all of the, you know, the creation of genres. Like, that's kind of what happens, isn't it? With new metal, it's rap mixed with metal simplified. Apart from Meek or Bar- uh, not, not Meek or, sorry, Mudvayne. Yeah. Which I think was a, was a unique new metal band at the time. Well, they were my stepping stone into, a, uh, into Meshuggah, Mudvayne, because they were fans of Meshuggah before anyone really knew of Meshuggah. I think Monkey or Head from Korn said that their whole point with Korn was to take all the slow parts of Morbid Angel and remove all the solos and all the blast beats and just have a band that is only Morbid Angel's slow parts. <laughs> Interesting. That's cool. I like that. Yeah, it's also the same sort of thing that, like, you take something pre-existing, but 
you combine it with like a newer idea of just groove the whole time, mm-hmm. for yeah. instance, and they're an entire genre came from that. That's definitely how I envision Tesseract to a degree as well. Like to me, it's like all of the rhythmic complexity of Meshuggah, but it's done in a way that is melodically pleasing. And not to say that Meshuggah isn't melodically pleasing. It's just a bit out there in terms of its melody. I guess it's a more acceptable, understood melodic sound as opposed to... More accessible. Exactly. When I think of Meshuggah, melodic isn't really what comes to mind. <laughs> We've got a couple of songs. Like Straw's Port at Random, that's quite a, for my sugar at least, it's quite a melodic song. And quite a slow, it's got a big solo in it, which is my favourite solo of theirs because it's not mealing around like Alan Holdsworth. It's quite a Gilmore-esque style solo, actually. You know what I think it is? I think that their school of melody is kind of, it just comes from the atonal school and it's harder to wrap your head around that kind of stuff. I think the Tesseract, it's more traditional style melodies that are for sure definitely honestly i prefer that like i like being able to understand melodies (laughs) (laughs) it helps i I like both but yeah i think that meshuggah makes more sense as well when you listen to alan holdsworth yeah yeah definitely yes which i would say that they had a that alan had a huge impact on the meshuggah sound and that that again is the merging of two genres the meshuggah is basically the bastard child of (laughs) the bastard child of metallica mixed with alan holdsworth yeah that's kind of like this Metallica's one mixed with Alan Holtworth. That's what Meshuggah is. So, Ackle, when you started combining the styles, was it like an instant light bulb, like, boom, this is it? Or is it something that kind of you were trying and it sounded like shit at first and <laughs> you kept trying and then eventually it worked? I'm not sure. I think it was just a... Gra- I feel like it was a gradual process, even though at some point I would have just had some heavy riffs of a clean sound on top. Or I guess the original stuff I was writing when I was 18 would have had that kind of tight metal stuff with clean sounds plonked on top and then i think it was just refining that until the sound got better which i guess came down to the production side of things or just creating tones what about the arrangement side of things like the reason i'm asking is because i know that you know metal guitar doesn't play nice with lots of things (laughs) but i think if you arrange it right it can like i still struggle with arrangement a little bit or at least that's i feel that's a bit of a weakness of mine or it definitely was anyway just trying to arrange songs and structures i find that quite tricky and also trying to mix and merge you know heavy guitars along distorted guitars is just white noise essentially and then trying to fit in clean sounds on top of that and then drums and then vocals it it all just starts to it can turn into a horrible mess or a mush if you're not if you're not careful so so i'm actually trying to strip things back a little bit with newer stuff just because the whole less is more is saying i think warrants being said it's literally as victor wooten said isn't it the music is the space not the notes that you play yeah something to be said for that for sure when you're trying to fit that together what are some things that helped you get better at it maybe cq maybe it's in how you write the riff or maybe it's how you voice them like are there any things that you can think of that i don't want to say became rules but kind of became more tendencies that worked for you I think a big thing for me, it might apply to it, is just game structure. At least for me personally, is just turning everything the fuck down because it just works for me. Because what I tend to do when I'm mixing is you do all these little adjustments and they start to creep up and then, oh, my master bus is clipping. So I try to do I mean, the, the K-metering kind of approach. So you start at minus 14, I think it is. That helped clear things up for me a lot, just having all that headroom there. Because you're in 24-bit, you've got loads of headroom anyway. And recently with my Kemper... I didn't have the problem with my line six, but with the Kemper, I'm, the reverbs are very... There's a lot of low-end information in the reverbs. So on the last album we did, I was cutting out all this low-end 
which I didn't want to have to cut out basically. So it's just trying to really listen to what you're recording and, you know, especially with effects, making sure they're not swamped with too much information. And I always used to use the old, I don't know if you remember, Brown, the old TC Electronic integrated preamp. Oh, you've got one of those. Yeah, I've had one for years and years. Um, but obviously Meshuga used to use those. I sold mine. Cracked it out the other day. I just forgot how fucking good it is. <laughs> it just cleans everything up. I was cutting so much low-end stuff out of my guitars just so it sounds good in the mix. It can make it sound a bit crap by itself, but in the mix, you know, you've got to cut out all this low-end low end information. But just putting a TC uh, pre in front of it, or even just an EQ pedal, would probably do a similar job, just cleaned up everything for me. I just completely forgot how useful they are. I actually sold mine about, mm, I want to say three months ago to the, to the bass player of Slipknot, who uh, I'm sure you remember, he was in Cry for Silence. Of course, yeah. Um, yeah. V-Man. V-Man, that was it, yeah. Yeah, I shouldn't have sold that pedal, but at the time it seemed like a good idea because I never used it. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, I'll no, buy yours. I fall, yeah. <laughs> fall in love with it again, but there are some clones out there. Yeah. How do you go about removing things? So it sounds to me like the big takeaway for me is getting rid of shit that gets in the way like <laughs> like only having what really needs to be there so that there's room for everything else but how do you go about doing that and not neutering it it works again for me in a way on the high mids as well like i hate the harsh high mids sort of like the 3k well between 2 and 4k that kind of area just it sounds like a whistle or like a resonance like a shh, particularly in distorted guitar tones you get it in like the cymbals and stuff as well but I tend to always try and notch them out so you get a nice smooth sound. If you notch too much out, then it can sound not energetic enough. But I find if you notch them out with a really sharp cue, you can then boost the brightness afterwards with some kind of nice EQ or like a clarophonic so that you've still got a brightness, but it's smooth at the same time, if that makes sense. At least that's how I personally approach it for my guitar sound. So you're compensating. Yeah, getting rid of the harshness, but then adding the brightness back in afterwards a little bit. I find that one of the toughest things when removing the harshness in guitars is you find a frequency that sucks, you kill it, but then suddenly you're hearing other frequencies that suck. You kill those, and then you hear other frequencies that suck, and you kill those. You should see my EQ, it's horrible. But <laughs> is it like 8 million little cuts? Yeah, exactly. But I try to make the cues incredibly steep, and I try not to make them, or at least nowadays, I try to make them only... You know, no more than 6 deep, uh, six dB, just trying to do like 3 dB there and 3 dB there. Also, you've probably heard of a Soothe, the OEK sound. Oh, yeah. That does a That's good a job. game-changing plug-in. Yeah, I love that one. I just got a Soothe 2 uh, yesterday. But I think as long as you don't overdo it, and I find personally it works in the mix really well, it might be when you solo the guitar, it's like, oh, it's, it sounds odd. But I find it helps uh, the mix as a whole, and especially once you start introducing, you know, the vocals and clean guitars and stuff. It just helps, helps things fall into place if you don't overdo it. It's quite complex with that sort of frequency range of the mix as well because you've not only got distorted guitars, your clean guitars, there's probably a lead guitar in there somewhere as well, and then your vocalist is singing over the top. So you've got all these interfering frequencies that all share the same frequency band. Yeah. I mean, sometimes though it can just be, it is just literally one horrible frequency that's standing out and even just cutting that one or two can be enough sometimes just so it's not you cut that and everything else is raised as a as a result or at least that's how i look at it like all the low mids are brought up as a result so it sounds well in theory should sound fuller that's how i approach it anyway fatter yeah brown how did you learn to 
EQ guitars because you're you're pretty damn good at it too. Thank you. Yeah, man. <laughs> I think to a degree it was a mixture of like for one thing that I will always say is that every single time I met with Ackle, his guitar tone was always really good. And I remember the the first time I saw him play, he had a Mesa Boogie rectifier preamp with a two ninety. Oh god, I forgot about that. And what he must have been what seventeen at the time, I think. Didn't know what the hell I was doing with it or how to use it. But yeah. <laughs> so he was one of the guys that had the best gear at that time period because I remember at that time period I had a, I had a PV Envoy <laughs> to sort of compare. So I think that it was like obviously the high-end gear it brought out different niceness to them and also different sets of problems as well and it was just like learning as I went along from not only listening to Ackle but also other things that people were using at the time like obviously the Pod Pro was a really big thing in our world in the early 2000s yeah that was a big learning tool wasn't it Angles. We both used to have angles. So that, you know, miking that up with, I remember the first Fell Silent EP was a Powerball mic'd up with a Neumann TLM-193. Is that correct? Yes. Yep. That's yeah. the mic I'm using now. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. You got it fixed? No, but it still sounds fine. So. <laughs> <laughs> <I hope>. ah, <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. And I, I think it's just a, a case of like listening to the guitar tones that I liked and what I liked about them just over a period of time and then trying to work that into a mix because the guitar has to sound good before you even attempt to do anything with it in the mix. Yeah, definitely. Get the source sounding good. I mean, if we go back to the URM nail the mix session that I did where I said that I only really like using four bands of EQ because I find that if you really need to go more than that, then it's pro- the source sound is probably not completely right to a degree. Not to say that you won't go outside of those, you know, parameters, but if you think about an analog desk, you were very limited on what was achievable. And even people like, you know, Wallace, Andy Wallace, were able to create some of the best and most iconic guitar tones from only having that much control. I guess that could be something, because obviously nowadays you're using lots of real amps and... I don't know why, I just don't, I'm used to using Kempers and Axifexes and Pods and things and the Helix. So I think there's something to be said about miking up a real amp. Maybe you don't feel the need to EQ as much. You've mic'd up amps before, so you understand the differences, but maybe it's probably about time that we, you know, you got some, a cab and a mic just to so you can see (laughs) the difference again. Because I think that those frequency bands in 2 to 4K are more more apparent on the digital side of the guitar tone spectrum. Yeah, that's what I was going to go with that. I I do agree with that. You do get them with real amps, but I feel they're less intrusive. They have this term that I call usable mids. There's something in the, those high mids of the modelers that, don't get me wrong. I think modelers sound great, but yeah, there's like this inherent high mid thing that's just more uh, brutal in a bad way than on amps, I think. But, I mean, I've heard real amps sound like total shit. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, (laughs) I think that people who say that real amps are 100% better hands down just maybe haven't been around long enough to have heard just how bad you can make a real amp sound or something. Uh, (laughs) Because holy shit. Yeah. I'd love to start using a real amp again, but then my studio is essentially taking over the main bedroom I'm running out of rooms in the house. Like I won't have anywhere to sleep if I need a, a room to put my amps. I've <laughs> got to draw a line at some point. Is there a reason for you to use a real amp? I mean, it seems like you've got it going on quite well with. I'd like. I do love diesels. I've got a thing for diesels. I absolutely love them. So I would like to, and then I could obviously then profile that onto the Kemper if I wanted to. 
and use that for, as a live sound. And that's something I've been thinking of doing recently, but money and space. So <laughs> I think it's time for you to get a diesel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like that actually brings me back. And in me. fact, I'm not going to bring up this story um, from Ackles past about the diesel. Maybe I should. Do you not remember? He's Oh, uh, when I yeah. got scammed on eBay. Yeah. I forgot I about that. Yeah, bring it up. Yeah, Why not? It's two grand <laughs> I'll never see again. Ackle, Ackle bought a diesel. I want to say it was a Herbert. I think it was. A, I can't remember. Yeah, I think it was. It might have been a VH4 diesel off eBay. And the guy, like, he met the guy, messaged him, and he basically, in fact, actually, do you know what? I'm not going to tell the story. Aqua got scammed. I got scammed. That's what you need to know, basically. I lost all my money because some guy on eBay said, well, he stole my money. Then a week later, I was like, you can't just start telling a story and not tell it. (laughs) I bought a diesel Herbert on eBay, never saw the item, basically. He never responded to the emails. And uh, there's no and way of tracking you him. Paid a lot of money, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, it's like it's probably the best part of two grand back then. It was just a scammer. I couldn't do anything about it. There were no buyer protections. No, there was no way to get it back. If I remember rightly, you sent the money through Western Union. Did didn't I? But I was very young and foolish, so so excited for a diesel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, oh, this is too good to be true. I'll buy it, <laughs> idiot. <laughs> so that to me sounds like you need to buy a diesel. To overcome. Just to set things right. Yeah. <laughs> I did use one there recently with, um, you know, Martin Greck, his new album. Uh, yes, I've not listened to it yet. Actually, I'd actually say that that is one of your inspirations as well, to a degree. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Martin Greck's amazing. I love him as a singer. Uh, well, Andy's songwriting as well. Who is that? I've never heard of him. He released an album, his first album when he was, well, he wrote it when he was 15 or 16. And it's, his voice is amazing. And he was on a couple of like car adverts. And he kind of disappeared until very recently when he's released a new album. He's on one of the Tesseract songs uh, called Hexes. He did a duet with Dan. I just really like his approach to songwriting and his voice is just great. One of the ex-members of his band actually is quite a prevalent subject in the recording field as well. And I'm going to explain why. So the old guitar player of Martin Greck is a guy called Peter Miles, who owns a recording studio in England called Middle Farm. And Middle Farm is where Architects recorded their last album. Silosis. Nolly is a prevalent figure at Middle Farm Studios. <coughs> I went there first. There's also quite an interesting story about Peter Miles and you, Ackle. Should I bring him on the URM podcast? Oh, yeah. Pete's great. Yeah, he's awesome. I've never heard of him before, but you guys are talking well of him. Oh, yeah, for well, sure. You've, you've heard of Middle Farm Studios, right? I mean, you must have seen pictures of it. It's like it's one of the most popular studios in England right now, I would say. I feel like I have. This all sounds new to me. It's a really nice sounding drum room. Looks like it. Really nice sounding room, yeah. I've got a little drum sample pack that I did years ago. Uh, after the Martin Greck uh, album, we just did some samples there. Uh, it's only a little one, but they sound great, though, at the room. Looks really nice. I'm looking at it right now. There's quite an interesting story involving uh, Pete Miles with you, Ackle, that involved you uh, getting arrested. <laughs> yeah, so what happened? <laughs> what? Do you not remember? Okay, I'll see where you're leaving yeah. that now. How do I remember all this useless information? <laughs> Why are you talking bad at me? <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't your fault, really, to be to be honest, was it? No. No, it wasn't his fault. Yeah, he sold him an AC30, a Vox AC30, back in the day. Yeah, I had an old, it was an old 1970s or 1960s AC, Vox AC30. I sold it to me in miles, so I had some cash in my bedroom. But then, why was I arrested though, Brown? <laughs> I will not bring that up. <laughs> but yeah, 
basically him having a load of cash on the table got him arrested. And I'm sure that some people can piece that together. What, they thought he was a prostitute or a drug dealer? Yes. Prostitute. Exactly. <laughs> or, or a prostitute, both. yeah. <laughs> what were the cops doing looking at the wad of money? Noddy and Nima, the other guys from Phil Sargent, had been around mine. And basically when they are on their way home, they got uh, picked up, said, where have you been? And they had to eventually point out my house and they came knocking at midnight. I just made myself a nice uh, cheesy pasta bake. <laughs> and I was high off my face. I was just like, oh, what? Oh, God damn it. And they see the money and say, what's, what's that? You've been selling some weed, have you? It's like, no, honestly, I've just sold a Vox AC30 like the other day. But also that Vox AC30 now belongs to Matt Bellamy from Muse. So it's gone to a good home. Interesting. Man, that dude is fucking awesome. Yeah, right. Conveniently wave the subject away from me getting arrested that. <laughs> All right, we don't have to talk about you getting arrested, but actually when we were talking earlier about melody, uh, when I was thinking of like traditional melodies and like simple melodies, I like that band immediately came to mind, Muse, because their stuff is like, you know, they don't really use seventh chords. Like it's all just like triads and simple chord progressions, but it's awesome. It's quite Buckley-esque, Jeff Buckley-esque. Well, it's, well, some of the songs anyway. Yes, there's definitely that. And definitely a lot of, um, I would say, Baroque kind of style of music. Yeah, in yeah definitely. Matt Bellamy's uh, piano playing. Yeah, for sure. Baroque rip. I also like how massive they sound as a three-piece. Obviously, they have live instruments and people playing instruments live and obviously a backing track, but it's just that is like sort of the equilibrium, isn't it, of like complex songwriting, but really good songs. Because I think that, you know, if you take Stockholm Syndrome, it's not a completely simple riff. It's actually pretty complex in its construction, but it just sounds so good. I haven't checked out the new album yet, but I'm sure the AL probably has. I have. It's good. If you're looking for a heavy album, you're not going to like it. But so just saying, like if people are expecting them to still be heavy, then they're going to be very disappointed. But they just want to hear really good songwriting with like... And the production as well. Like I still yeah. use Madness. I don't know if you know the song Madness is kind of like my production. Sounds great. like... Uh, trying out new speakers, I tend to use that song. It's just amazing. There's a song on the new one called The Dark Side, which I think is one of their best songs ever, but I don't know if it even has a guitar in it. <laughs> it's like, if Dark Wave was good music. Do you reckon Matt Bellamy was playing a lot of uh, Mario, and that's why he's named The Dark Side? Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. I know that they've uh, lifted video game themes before, so... Yeah. <laughs> or quoted them, let's just say. Not lifted, quoted so I think that his influences have to come from classical music, soundtracks, Nirvana, Radiohead, and video games, and Queen. Yeah, yeah definitely Queen. Yeah. Are they heroes in your guys' neck of the woods? They are, but I don't think the metal world, the metal world really is that bothered by music, are they? Or not? It's a very mixed, at least a very mixed opinion of them, I think. See, there's, there's, quite, there's quite a lot of their songs that I would say that metalers do like, but... I think the the problem with metal is is they're quite elitist in what sort of range of sounds they want to listen to. That's true. Not all of them, obviously, just a, a handful. And Muse doesn't tick those boxes anymore. I think that when it was, uh, I can't even remember the names of the albums now. Uh, Abs uh, Absolution, is it? What's the name of that album? Yes, Absolution. And then the one before it, I think that... Origins of Symmetry. Yeah, exactly. The one with Stockholm Syndrome on it and Plug In Baby and stuff like that. I think at that point in time, they were more accepted by metalers, but the metalers that have sort of diversified their sound, I would say that they probably still quite enjoy Muse, but then the real the real metalers don't really care for them. 
Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. What was the album before the, the newest one? Was it called Kaleidoscopes? Is that right? Yeah, I can't remember. There was like... Drowns? I can't remember. it. It's the one with the like... There was a lyric video that had the lines in it. There was all these multicolor things. I can't remember the name of the album, but there was some really good songs on there as well. But again, because it wasn't just the metals that people would really, (laughs) really, you know, like it uh, if they weren't, you know, fans from before, I guess. It's called Drones. How do you guys uh, deal with that whole thing? Like the metal fans uh, expecting a very, very own narrow range of music like how do you guys deal with that and keep your bands current but also not stale or do not even care i feel like we're kind of established enough like monument center correct yeah i think it's harder for newer bands maybe for that kind of thing to break through unless you're a bit more established but generally i try not to be too worried about that just as long as you're enjoying what you're doing and creating i think that's the most important thing really i would definitely uh wholeheartedly agree with that. I mean, I think that, you know, even with bands that sort of change their sound, the underlining sort of sound to them is still there. And I think that that is like something that we can go back to Dream Theater with. When you listen to Dream Theater, even though every album sounds completely different from one another, it still sounds like Dream Theater, if it makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a case of like keeping the original core of what your sound is and maybe just like changing the guitar tone ever so slightly. (laughs) Yeah, I guess like, like I was saying earlier, like when I'm writing, I'm trying to when I'm trying to write songs. I'm also trying to create a sound as well, whether that be guitar tones or synths or bass tones, drum sounds, whatever. So I think that comes part and parcel. Like sometimes I get sucked into creating a sound that I forget. Oh, I should be writing a riff right now. I need to at least figure a way out of being able to differentiate between the two better and like focus on one at a time. Or maybe you can do both at the same time. But I don't know. I think it's better to try and focus on writing a riff and then worry about the sound afterwards or vice versa. I also think it depends on the method in which the album is recorded and times. Like, for example, like, you know, bands used to get into the studio, do the pre-production of their album beforehand and record it, find the tempos of all the tracks and then do it. And that kind of gives them the time to sort of explore with different tones and different emotions at different points of their song whereas now i think the the way that music is recorded is that we've kind of already finalized what we think it should sound like in the moment of the writing and then you've got to write it (laughs) exactly yeah so i think that i think that's a bit of a habit i've got stuck into it can work but it's kind of i've got used to working that way so I'd like to try and switch it around a little bit. What what would be really cool, I think, for you would be to see where you could take it if you just went into a studio for like two months. Do you know what I mean? Like like all of you are in the room and then you try and redefine all the bits ever so slightly. It just is like a different sort of way that to see the music go in with a different, not necessarily a different set of ears, but do you know what I mean? Just like seeing what you could do with each individual part if you say had like a live amp or if you had something else the closest thing we've had to that is uh that martin grek duet song uh hexes because it was actually me and jay and martin just jamming around uh, at middle farm uh, for a few hours and they had like a recording of about four or five hours worth of us just noodling around jamming and the setup had was great it was a diesel vh4 but it had an ab pedal so it was split into a canampeg 8x10 so, uh, with an octave pedal so i was going for the diesel for my gently sound, my rhythm sound. Oh, I said gent. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then but obviously I had the octave sound going through the bass. It was amazing. I bet that sounded enormous. It was great. Uh, but then, yeah, out of that four hours of jamming, there's a couple little nuggets of 
good riffage that we kind of you know turned into hexes basically so i'd like to do more of that for sure just jamming so i'm not used to it anymore have either of you ever had a producer produce your guitar parts peter miles did when we were doing the um mike grek album i did a i played guitar for one of his songs that's probably the last time i had a producer produce yeah my tone so to speak my playing the last monuments album was for me i think that doing the entire process is basic insane sometimes <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> so yeah the last monuments album there was a guy called jim pinder he works at treehouse with carl bone who i know you're familiar with al yeah carl's amazing oh amazing producer yeah uh, amazing engineer amazing mixer so yeah jim his assistant um recorded all the guitars for the last monuments album and the only negative i would say about it is i uh, for me personally because i i like to record whole riffs at a time because i like to get the flow and catch that groove exactly yeah and i think it was comped within an inch of its life <laughs> where it almost doesn't even sound like a guitar take anymore so i guess yeah I, I think that's the the thing like getting a producer to do your guitar is really good because it's obviously you know as I was saying earlier, you can't really listen to your guitar, what you're playing while you're also trying to engineer it. So I guess it was good experience for that, but maybe it was just comped too tightly for my personal tastes. Yeah, I always liked it better when I had a good producer producing my playing Yeah, for that same reason that could actually focus on the playing. That makes sense. Yeah. There's certain things that throw you off, like hearing your pick noise makes you think that you're hitting with more accuracy than you really are sometimes like watching the screen go by like all that stuff just distractions yeah they're distractions from being 100 percent zoned in but brown i remember when i tried tracking you for that creative live class we did i came to the conclusion that you should always track yourself <laughs> here's why i think so normally i think faster than the guitar player i'm tracking i've tracked a lot of good players but Normally, like, I could keep up. <laughs> I couldn't keep up with you. Like, you were out thinking me. You just knew exactly what you were going for, where, you know, somebody else needs to figure out what you're going for, but you already know exactly what you're going for and how to get it. And so that time that a producer is going to be spent, if it's a good producer, is that time that that dude is going to spend trying to figure you out, you could have already been halfway through the song. You'll know personally in you when, you're, when you've done a good take because you'll just feel like, yeah, that was it. I want that one. So, yeah, that makes sense. But I think to a degree, is that like, how was your experience uh, tracking with Peter? Maybe it was different because it, it wasn't my songs. It was Martin's yeah, songs. So it wasn't your band. Yeah, so it was a bit different, even though I was kind of bringing my take on it. It was uh, Martin's riffs. So maybe that made it a bit different. I feel like if it was my stuff, I would have been a bit more... OCD. I've been open, open to it, but yeah, OCD about it. Yeah, that makes sense. If you're playing on a session for somebody else, you're there to fulfill their vision. It's not so... That's true. It's about, you know, they asked you because they like your style, but still, at the end of the day, you're performing a service for them. For their vision, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, obviously, like I said, they wouldn't have asked you if they didn't like your style. So they want what you can bring to the project, but I know that, like... If you had brought something that was just totally wrong, <laughs> it wouldn't work. Just wouldn't use it. Yeah, they just wouldn't use it. But still, like, I think that approaching it, knowing that it's not your own project, it takes some of the pressure off. Yeah, I'd agree with that. But I guess it's probably also both me and Brown have probably just got used to working that way as well for since the Fell Silent days. It's, we've always just kind of recorded ourselves. So it's just a way of, we've got used to working that way, I guess. I'd say I recorded myself 90% of the time, but the time that I did have 
I've only had a good producer once. It was Jason Sukoff. And that is maybe the best I've ever played in the studio ever. But he's kind of like an odd one with guitar. He's very, very, <laughs> he's gifted. There's another producer I worked with thinking about it. I've just, just remembered when it was, uh, we were tracking a Tesseract thing. And yeah, that ties in with the opposite of what you were just saying and what you were saying earlier. This, the producer didn't know what I was going for. Like I kind of turned up and was like, oh, maybe let's hear, have someone else's approach in it. Maybe they can get me a really cool sound. I just had no idea what kind of sound I was after. And it was a bit of a waste of a day, to be honest. It just didn't work. That's why I enjoyed when Sukov tracked me, because he could outthink me. Right, yeah. So I didn't have to explain the vision to him. He just got it. I mean, any other time someone's tracked me, it's been terrible. I fucking hated it. I guess it's like bandmates. You've got to find someone that suits the band, essentially. So you're essentially part of the band. Exactly. Would you ever trust anyone to record your guitars for you, Echo? Again? Yeah, if I found someone that worked, then yeah, definitely. If it was someone, you know, we tried it out and it was it was working, then yeah, for sure. Because obviously there has been multiple people involved in the production elements of Tesseract. Like Randy on the last album, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, the choirs. So he did a little bit. Obviously Aiden did a, a lot of the soundscape ambient sort of stuff on the last two albums. So yeah, I mean... Like, uh, yeah, I just wanted to know if that's something that you'd ever be open to. Like to see, maybe you just have to be the right person. Something you'd have to work on beforehand before actually... Definitely, 100%. Yeah. Because then at least then you just have to play guitar. (laughs) Yeah, and that did work when I was tracking with Peter Miles and Martin Grech. That's probably the last time or the first time I can remember of actually just focusing on what I'm playing, you know, 100% and nailing it. So I'm just curious because I know that a lot of engineers will be listening to this. I'm not asking this in order for people to hit you up and try, but just in a in a hypothetical, you guys as artists, what would it take for you to be won over by a producer who wants to track you? Not you guys as engineers, you guys as artists. I guess hearing previous work that they've done or some something they've worked on and just being blown away by it, I guess, I'm like, well, how did you do that? Check your secrets. Be something like that, I suppose. Just being impressed with someone's work think for me it obviously would be that but it would also be someone that's willing and has the time as i say i record in a pretty unique way in comparison to a lot of metalers in the fact that i like whole riff takes and if the riff repeats four times i just want to play it in one take and it's not an arrogance thing of me thinking that i can do this it's the way it feels i can't explain it it adds a flow an extra something to it doesn't it and you can do it yeah, yeah, I mean, I can, yeah, but it takes time. That's one of those things. It needs someone that is as dumb as me, basically, <laughs> just to sit there and listen to the me play the riff over and over and over until the one take is completely right. And, you know, like, for example, um, the Emanuensis guitars, which obviously you've heard, Al, because obviously it's on URM with either Creator. Those entire guitars took me three and a half weeks, nine hours a day. I heard them before that, too. Damn, AR recorded the vocals, I'm so sorry. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, they're not the tightest guitars in the world, but it was. I think it's a good indication of what was possible at the time for me. And I just prefer the flow of it, the way that it sounds like a band. So that's kind of like I need, I would have to find someone that doesn't mind repetition, doesn't get um, angry when they hear distorted guitar for nine hours a day. (laughs) So sounds to me like the criteria is A, you have to be blown away with their previous work. B, they need to be willing to go the distance. But how would you know that they would be willing to go the distance? The reason I ask that is because a lot of people will say that they're willing to, but most people don't actually 
walk the talk, how would you go about figuring out that you actually believe that the person is down to fulfill the vision? I would be looking at that computer screen constantly. No, but I mean, before you get in the studio with them. Yeah, I guess you wouldn't really know. You'd have to do a couple of testers, I guess, wouldn't you? Like do a couple of singles or like demos or something together. I guess that would what it would be. Yeah, it's like uh, like with any situation, you kind of have to just see how you work with that particular person, right? I think that's what it comes down to. But that would be the criteria for me anyway, being obviously Ackles thing. And then the second thing, someone with patience. I guess maybe even approaching people that are used to doing the live tracking element. When I say that, I mean like Chua Madsen, who obviously recorded The Violent Sleep of Reason, the latest Meshuggah album that's a live recording with overdubs, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. It is. Obviously, Meshuggah are the anomaly. They probably played one take and it was good enough. But Between one and three takes, he said. That is just insane. Yeah. <laughs> that makes me feel physically sick. Yeah, we had that on <laughs> Nail the Mix too. So back in 2017 and it's live in that everybody did single takes. It's kind of like your uh, your live stream. They, they didn't necessarily play it all together at the same time. Okay, right. Like, I think the bass and the drums did or something. Yeah, I think there's videos of that part, isn't there? Yeah, and the vocals were done separately, but it was still, like, live-ish. A cohesion to it, yeah. It's pretty insane stuff. So, yeah, just approaching people that you know are willing to do stuff like that, because I, I think that that nowadays is actually an art form that's kind of getting lost a little bit in the production world. Well, yeah, because there's very few bands who can actually do that. So, Or afford it. Well, afford it is one thing, but I mean, you guys know as well as I that metal bands generally sound like shit live. And so <laughs> it's just not something that's very common. I can tell you this from like several years of having bands in the studio, like 11 and a half months straight, maybe one per year would have been capable of something like that, maybe. So it's an art form that's getting lost, not because there's no talent in production or modern production sucks, but there's just not that many bands who are even capable. So it's a nice idea. It's like not reality in general. Mm -hmm. Maybe to a degree, yeah. I think if you're Jens Bogren or something, then it might be reality. If, if you're like the kind of dude who's like constantly working with those top tier bands, you've had Opeth through a few times or whatever, then yeah, but I think in general, it's just not that common. Not agree. Yeah. Microphone dropped. <laughs> so Akko, we have some questions from uh, our audience for you, if you don't mind us asking them. Of course. Okay. So because we love Kieran, this first one is from uh, Kieran Giles. Your melodies are haunting. Other than Martin Gretsch, where else does this sound come from? Well, Martin Gretsch, there's an influence there, yeah. Um, probably like we were saying earlier, maybe... Pink Floyd, because I was growing up with Pink Floyd all around me when I was a kid and still listen to it now. I think they're the biggest two influences that come to mind. Yeah. Pink Floyd and Martin Gretsch. Good influences, even though I've never heard Martin Gretsch, I believe you. Oh, you really should. Worth checking out. Yeah. He's phenomenal. I'll send you some, uh, something Zoo. I can't remember the exact name. Open Heart Zoo. Yeah. That's the one. Yeah. So it's not called Something Zoo. No, 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 no. <laughs> but I couldn't remember the name. I was chatting to Ben the other day and he was going on about harmonic minor scales or natural minor scales. Uh, Martin Gretsch pretty much always has the leading, what do you call it, the leading seventh. It's always. My theory is rubbish, but it's always a, a sharpened seventh, the leading note. Yeah, so the major seventh. Yeah, major seventh, right. But I love using that. Whenever I use that, I feel like I'm, I'm feel like I'm ripping 
Martin Grekoff because he uses it all the time, but he uses it in a really cool way. <laughs> this next one is from Joao Medeiros, and I'm sorry if I pronounce your name wrong. Joao. Dude, I ask his questions all the time, and Joao. Joao, yep. Okay. The split coil tones you come up with are inspiring and made me experiment with different pickup configurations. And ultimately wish that some of my guitars had just single coils. Going back to a humbucker after a spanking single coil riff often makes the tone feel too hot and hunky. That being said, what is your criteria for using a split coil tone on a riff or not? And how different is the tone you need to dial for it to work? I find I need to change lots of stuff like gain and bass response that it doesn't work on the same tones as the humbucker. And your music is a driving force in my life. Much love and thank you. It's very sweet. I usually just have like one general patch on my Kemper, which I'll use for both my bridge sound and the uh, split coil sound, which is on the neck. The only thing I'll probably do differently is the post EQ. It'll lead like all those harsh frequencies I was mentioning earlier. You probably need to do more of that with the split coil pickup sound. And if you get that right, you can usually flick between the two and essentially have two patches, one for your coil, split coil sound and one for your bridge sound. And you can get them to kind of merge together quite well if you sculpt the eq well enough i forgot the first part of the question don't think you remind me it was what's your criteria for using split coil or not yeah sometimes you'll just be playing a riff or you'll be coming out of a riff and then if you get it brown you just instinctively know that oh, that's going to sound it does give it a tighter more percussive vibe to it so i'll just instantly go for you know the split coil kind of sound whereas the bridge sounds just a smoother sound it just it depends on the riff you just kind of play with it until you you know you know what's going to work for it Exactly, just experimentation, I guess, then, at that point. Yeah, I'm starting to go off the core thing a little bit recently. I don't know why. I think it just comes in phases and waves, like, like everything does. Yeah. All right, I've got a question here from... I can't pronounce this name, so I do <laughs> apologize, but it's by... I want to say Elia, <laughs> which is it's probably wrong. Elia Williams. <laughs> uh, hey, Ackle, could you name me one riff you are most proud of and one riff that you really wish you had written by another artist? So two questions. One I'm most proud of, probably one, not my newest one, because it's one I've heard the least. <laughs> and it's the demo is called Sludge. <laughs> I wrote it a year ago, but it's not out yet. But nobody knows that one yet. Probably won't be out for another Please five send years. It. But <laughs> <laughs> in terms of another song, and I'm instantly thinking of my sugar. <laughs> of course. I'm trying to think of riffs I always sound check with. Oh, what are they called? I don't remember their name. Who the hell's that? That probably makes no sense. I what they're called. I can hear the groove of it. <laughs> Maybe textures, polars. So I always uh, sound check with that quite a lot. I love that riff. Yeah, textures, polars. All right. Here's one from uh, Jonathan Davies, not from Corn. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> At least I don't think so. Hi, Ackle. You're one of the grooviest guitarists out there. The way you compose riffs is quite different to a lot of other modern metal guitar players. Your grooves seem to have a bit more space and... I don't know what he means by this. To say, and they don't riff out at 220 BPM. Can you talk more about this approach and how you come up with riffs in general? I wish I knew, then I'd be able to write more often. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like maybe the newer stuff I'm writing, like, you know, the last couple of albums are probably a little bit slower compared to the first album and, like, and the Fell Silent material. Maybe it just comes with age. I'm just kind of cool with playing slower stuff. But I don't know, it just becomes, like we were saying earlier, it just becomes a way of working. It's kind of instinctive. You just... Well, like you were saying, uh, Al, just not forcing yourself, but just having a guitar on your lap and just playing the thing and not just saying, ah, I'll do that later, just getting on with it, really. And you eventually 
pick up a routine and a way of doing things. Yeah, it's like setting up the conditions for which greatness can transpire in. Yeah, I'm most comfortable in my studio writing or maybe just, I know I used to be quite comfortable just in front of a TV, kind of subconsciously writing, you know, just noodling around and then something might stick out and like, oh, and then I can run to the studio and use that. But if I was to try and write music, like on a, on a tour bus on tour, I just oh God. can't do it. It's just not a good environment <laughs> to, be in, to be in. I know so many people that have done that you know, over the years, and I don't get it. Yeah, Bring Me The Horizon do it, I think, but I just don't feel relaxed enough in the right state of mind to be able to feel like I've come up with anything good. I've written a couple of riffs at Soundcheck, and I've recorded them. But again, that's just kind of noodling, and then, oh, might use that. That was quite cool. Happy accident. Exactly, exactly. It's not very often. All right, so I've got a a question here from Nico Mathy. I know his name looks different on here, but his name's Nico. (laughs) Uh, Just informing Ale there. My one and only question for anyone in a band, what it's like before the band starts and how patient do you need to be to get a band from nothing to somewhere? This is my 16th year playing guitar and I have yet, still yet to jam with anyone besides my acoustic rock playing dad. Can I say something real quick? Let me just cut you off before you answer. How do you expect to get a band anywhere if you've never played with a band? You need a band first. Yeah, exactly. Like if you've been playing 16 years and only played with your dad, then step one would be start a band. I guess it's pretty difficult if you live in the middle of nowhere or not in a city or something perhaps, but yeah. Or maybe even not find the right people in the town you live in. You know, like we're all into different styles. So I guess to take away from this question is how patient do you need to be to get a band from nothing to somewhere? It is hard. You've got to yeah find the right people. And even then you've got to get tight together, practice. It, you know, it takes a long time. And even when you are a band and you are gigging, you're still going to be waiting around at the gig, waiting to sound check and then waiting to play. So it's just a constant cycle of waiting around, basically. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> How long did it take you guys to get signed from when your band started? It took me six years. Well, I feel like it, because I think of when I first started Tesseract, I think of it when it was a project, you know, when I was 17, 18 in my bedroom. And then we didn't become a full formed band, you know, several years later. We didn't get signed until 2010. So that's probably seven years, yeah, six, seven years uh, when we got signed to Century Media. But in terms of us being a band, it was probably only two or three years, perhaps. I consider from the very beginning. Yeah, but there's all that footwork beforehand, so yeah. I guess um, also with Ackle and to a degree me, because of Fell Silent and the fact that we were signed to two different labels, we were signed to Sumerian Records in the US and Basic in the UK, and I think to a degree, because of the association there, it kind of helped the progression of the the bands that happened after. Same with Heart of a Coward as well. So like, because obviously Tesseract got signed within two years of Fels Island no longer existing. And same with Monuments. Monuments was signed in 2010 as well. Because it had all that experience and it was a stepping stone for us both. And also people at that point had heard the names and the band. We did the groundwork, but just under a different moniker. I think that to answer his question, it's like extremely patient, right? Yeah, basically, yeah. I think also if he lives in the middle of nowhere and doesn't, you know, have people around him that are suitable than started on the internet. Yeah, you can do that now, yeah. I had a hard as fuck time finding band members for the first four years and still put out stuff and still did everything possible. I mean, still was trying to get signed before there was like a stable lineup. The stable lineup came together right before Roadrunner entered the picture, like 
a month before, but I was still proceeding as though that was the goal. So, I mean, I guess I just, I don't want to like harp on this too much, but I really, really think that if, um, dude is not doing anything but playing with his dad, he's got to like, got to rearrange his priorities a little bit if he wants to get a band off the ground and at the very least start putting out music as himself. Yeah. Or like get some demos out there, you know, on SoundCloud and post them on you know forums or Facebook pages. Yeah. Just try and find like-minded people. I mean, even if you just take like Tesseract and Periphery, none of those members in those bands knew each other beforehand. It's not like they were in local to the area. I mean, Ackle met Amos and James from a band called 209. <laughs> Phil Silent gig, yeah. Yeah, which we played. And They're then basically Limp Biscuit ripoff band. <laughs> same with Jay, the drummer. He played in a band called Araya that we mm-hmm. played with Enter Shikari. And then if you go to Periphery as well, they all met on the internet. So I think it's a case of, you know, a lot of the time you're not going to find local musicians in the area. And if you do, you're just extremely lucky. I want to put it down to that. Yeah, I, in this day and age, you should have no problem finding a band, man. If I could do it before the internet, and I didn't have local musicians either, even back then, then people nowadays can totally do it. It's just a matter of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And being patient, like you said. It's still hard, but yeah. No, you're right there. It's still hard, but it's not impossible at all. You just got to get out there. Just get something out there. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of how it came together for Tesseract, wasn't it? You just put the demos on the internet and then everything kind of happened. Yeah. The drummer Jay had me on MSN. Uh, from the MySpace demos, and we just kind of started chatting from there. Then we obviously met at that Phil Silent Araya into Shikari show. The internet is such a wonderful thing, yeah, and such a sure. terrible thing too. <laughs> right, so here's one from Steve Ludolf. I love the contrast in Tesseract from the punch you in the face, dirty, filthy riffs to the melodic euphoria. One of my favorite examples is Sunrise. So how challenging is it to pull off writing a song that goes through those dramatic contrasts and make it sound like it was just meant to be that way and not pieced together? God, that song's 16 years old now. (laughs) That's a really hard one because a song we don't play anymore because we're kind of fed up with it because we've overplayed it so much. Technically, wasn't one of the riffs in a Fell Silence song. Differently. Not from Sunrise, I don't think. Isn't that in Age of Deception? I can't remember. I don't, it's probably very similar. I can't actually remember. It's been a while since I've heard both of those songs. That song, though, from my memory of it, it was such a while ago. Um, like we were saying earlier, it was a song that I wrote in a night, you know, in a couple of hours amount of time. It just kind of, there was a flow there. So it wasn't pieced together. I think that... It's pretty much just one riff. It's just da-da-da-da-da-da for about five minutes with some... La-la-la-la. Over it. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was just quite... Didn't feel like I had... Compared to like Altered State, for example, or any of the newer albums, there's a lot of trying to arrange things and trying to piece things together or how can I get back to that tempo or that riff. With the older stuff, and especially Sunrise, is it's quite a simple song, I think, compared to what we're doing now. So it didn't feel like I had to... Jigsaw it all together. Do you write in motifs the way that uh, Brown does? Probably not as much. I'll have like, yeah, motifs I'll return to. Probably just be a chorus or something like that though. With a, yeah, some kind of theme or lead line over it. Obviously with, you know, the uh, altered state and stuff like that, do you have repeating like riffs that are done in different ways, like the time displacement and stuff like that? I guess you do. But do you have anything that's usually in a different key? Well, it might just kind of be the same riff, but then you alter it slightly, but they kind of have a 
relationship with each other somehow, but you might change it up slightly just to keep it interesting. But there would have been, you know, if you kind of, you got a one, two, three, four, then you can go into the three over four thing, which is like a da 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 that kind of thing. Yeah, so that's definitely present in your songs, definitely my songs, and definitely fell silent as well, to a degree. Yeah, for sure. I would do that a lot. But then you can kind of interchange the riff so they link together and do that as well. I kind of think of that thing as like, oh, what do you call it? The minor and major relationship, what do you call them? The relative. Relative, yeah. It's kind of like, I think of it like that, but with rhythm. Yeah, so it's like, like, I just call it time displacement. It's like the same riff, but it's, you know what we're talking about, right, Al? It's like where you... Yes, you, you actually showed me how to think about it because it, like, it was really hard to get my mind around it. <laughs> it actually, no, I think it was Swanee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it might have been Swanee, yeah. Who showed me how, how to think about it. It's because we recorded that song with you, Quasimodo, and it does it in that. That's why. It was when we did that first Creative Live, the songwriting one. You guys walked me through how you do that. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, we've done a lot of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> that was a long time ago as well. <laughs> yeah, 2013. Yeah. I feel like I've overdone that a little bit now, though. And whenever I want to do that, it's like, oh, I've done that a few times before. So I feel like it's not a gimmick, but I don't like to overuse it nowadays. It's a tricky one. But sometimes it just works and it sounds great, so why not? Exactly. <laughs> Maybe you should try doing it the other way. Yeah, I do. I do sometimes. Doesn't always. Sometimes it doesn't work, does it? It can, kind of depends on the riff, but yeah. Like when it, when you're in triplets and then you're going to the other variation of it, it seems to always work. But the other way going into triplets, it just seems to be a more difficult process. Well, sometimes when I'm writing a riff, I'll be doing it in the straight way, if that makes sense. Just one, two, three, four. And I think, oh, that riff's all right. But then I'll do the triplet version over it or the three over four version of it. And it will kind of completely transform the way the riff sounds. And I'll just go with that and get rid of the first version of it. And just, that's my riff now. And, oh, it sounds a bit more complicated than it used to. Sweet. <laughs> In a groovy, cool way, not just, a, oh, I'm being complicated for the sake of it. But we are being complicated for the sake of it. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of plinky plonkies on top. <laughs> All right, so I've got a question here from Bargav Sama on the group. Uh, Hi, Akul. Altered state changed my life. Thank you for the music. My question is about the thought process that goes into a Tesseract song. So this is a multi-layer question. So the first part of the question is, what part does each member play in the songwriting process? Generally, it's like 90, 95% me. Except for the last album, Sunder, uh, there was more involvement and we're trying to do more of that. So, for example, King, the opening riff, uh, James wrote that. That's a sick riff, by the way. And I just kind of tweaked it a little bit. Moss came up with the middle section of Juno, to the bass part of that, just the... I understood the melody over that part. And funny enough, Aiden, uh, who worked on us on that album, he came up with the chorus. The da, da, da. I kind of took that and did the uh, the verse riff. So that's probably the okay. you know, it's probably the most collaborative song we've had. But apart from that, it's generally 95% me, just because it's kind of a way we've got used to working and we all live hundreds of miles away. But I would like to do more jamming and be more collaborative. However you say that word. <laughs> <laughs> collaborative. Yeah. <laughs> so just to, to extend on that one as well, are any lyrical themes established beforehand? Uh, you'd have to ask Dan that one. I'm just focused on the music generally. So you don't write the music to, to like any theme or anything like that. You don't have like a no. I used I did with our Volta State actually the uh, Exo, the middle section, which is just a clean 
kind of lead part, just really simple. I wrote that uh, just to some just typical prog space images, you know, moving pictures of planets and the Earth. That was a way I needed a middle section to go into a, something new, and that came up really easily just because I was just, ah, oh, space, do something spacey. So that was quite cool. I like doing that because it doesn't always work, but writing to visual stimulus does work sometimes. It's the only way I can write, actually. So that's kind of why I was interested when you say you don't really write to anything. No, I'd like to do it more, but sometimes it doesn't work, sometimes it does, but it does can give a nice, well, a different feel to things. Yeah, because you're writing to situations or visuals rather than just... Oh, I did that, oh, I forgot, yeah, I did it to Beneath My Skin. There's a film called Under the Skin, Scarlett Johansson. That's a weird movie. Yeah, it's a weird movie. <laughs> it's creepy. <laughs> There's a little thing of it I put up on YouTube. It's just, I wrote the intro basically to the weird scene when the guys get sucked into the pit and they die basically <laughs> it's like a horror film but i wrote the music to that but timed it all so, you know when the scenes were changing it was just a load of weird noises going on but that ended up turning into beneath my skin so it can be a good way to yeah get the juices flowing a way to start a vibe of a song yeah and uh last question this one's from nikita zinevich which is uh, how does your background with the Pod XT and Line 6 uh, gear impact your current approach to guitar production? God, yeah, because both me and you, Brown, used to use that big bottom patch all the time, didn't we? Yeah, and I, believe it or not, mostly turn on my Pod XT to record still. Yeah, I do miss the clean sound, original clean sound I had. I ended up, so I have got the Helix, and I did have a nice clean sound I liked on that which I ended up just profiling onto the Kemper just for, <laughs> just, just for ease of use. So it's just one unit. I don't have to, you know, save those vital seconds. So I still, yeah, the Line 6 stuff I still use a lot. Where is your Pod XT? I think Nima's got it. Interesting. No. Oh, no, is that the Pod Pro? Yeah. I think it's locked up in my uh, cupboard somewhere, probably like on fire and <laughs> well, mine still turns on every single day, so I think you'll probably yeah. find it works. Yeah, okay. I think it's time to get it out again, isn't it? <laughs> oh, I used I used it for Polaris for all the clean sounds on that. I think sick, which was only like yeah a few years ago. So I still do really like it for the clean the clean sounds. Yeah, should probably get it back out. <laughs> it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because I, in fact, I, I just want to further a question on from this AL because obviously, yeah. um, with all the new technology that's coming out with the Axe Effects and the uh, the Kemper and stuff like this, it's really interesting how people perceive something as going out of date. Mm. And to me, I don't think you can really make a guitar sound go out of date if it sounds fantastic and if yeah. that were the case then why are all of these products profiling amps from the 50s yeah right that's true <laughs> i just see it as a really kind of crazy thing it is crazy but uh think about it like this those amps from the 50s weren't when amps were invented they were years into that technology the original pods were like right at the start of modeling so I actually like them, but I think that a lot of people might consider some of that earlier digital stuff shitty or outdated just because the technology hadn't rounded the corner yet. Yeah, I'd still find a use personally for some of those clean sounds just because it's that kind of tesseract sound, monument sound. It kind of works, but I don't, I think I'd struggle to use any kind of rhythm sound on the Line 6 personally. It's cool, it works, but I think I'd, well, I haven't tried it recently, but I think, I think it would just sound harsh in the mix if I was to use it now. Have you seen Ola's video? Who, sorry? Ola England put out a video. Oh, okay. Recently with the Podbean, like the original, well, I think with the 2.0, just to see if it held up, and it pretty much did. 
I'll have to check that out. Yeah, cool, cool. There's still people that use the VAMP by Behringer. Oh, God, I remember that. Yeah. In fact, actually, Joshua Travis posted a picture out with it today, so I'm actually really excited about that. <laughs> yeah, but anything he does is going to sound good. It doesn't matter. Yeah, right. And I think that also brings us on to the fact that is tone in the fingers. Yes, or at least 80, 90% of it. Yeah. I just don't think it goes out of date. I just think if you get a good sound out of it, then it's generally down to how you play it. And that's why... Like how hard you pick it and yeah. Yeah. I think it's all I think it's all in the mind for these people trying to find a better way for them to sound better instead of practicing. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. If you have someone that knows how to play really well, they can make anything sound good. And then it's just a matter of choosing according to tastes. But I think a lot of people are choosing according to what they think will make them sound good in the first place when really they've already got what will make them sound good in the first place on their body. Yeah. My body makes me sound good. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Akko, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, man. I enjoyed it. It was fun. Always good to chat, man. You too, buddy. We definitely need to catch up some more. We do. And... I'll try and remember it last uh, this time because last time we were pretty drunk after your last show of the tour. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was sick. What a cool guy. Yeah, man. It's really cool getting to talk to both of you considering what a shared history you have. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've known Ackle since I was, I think, 16 years old. So I've known him for longer than half my life now. Um, and as I've said repeatedly in that episode, without him, I definitely wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now. Did you know he was going to ascend to such heights when you were working with him? Was he one of those dudes that it's like, there's something special about this one. I bet you he's going to do great. Yeah, definitely. Got that feeling the entire time. Even with his old band, Mikor Barish, there was just something about it that was, you know, it was a sound that I'd never really heard before. It was him, if that makes sense. It just sounded like even the progression you can tell from his first band that I knew up until the end of Tesseract right now, I can't, it just sounds like him. That's that's the only way I can describe it. And it's always been there ever since I first met him. No matter where he goes, you just always know that's him. Isn't that like the ultimate place to get as a musician or artist? I think so, yeah. I think so too. I think that's like, you know, when you hear Steve Vai play, you instantaneously know it's him. When uh, John Petrucci plays, even though Dream Theater's albums all sound radically different, you know that it's John that's playing guitar because it has his thing and you might not be able to pinpoint what exactly that thing is but it's just in the sound not even necessarily the note choice it's just it sounds like that person creativity aside what do you think goes into making somebody sound like themselves like on a technical level I think it's a mixture of a bunch of different things like it can be the way that the guitar player hits the strings it can be the way that they tune their amp where they can play through any amp and it kind of always sounds like them. Or maybe it's even down to the to a production level, especially in Ackles' case. You know, I've seen him progress from production from, what, 2003, I think I first met him, till now. And it always, again, sounded like him, even though it's a more refined version of him. It always kind of had his polish to it. I definitely think that the way that somebody actually hits the guitar becomes super identifiable if they've worked it out long enough. It's something that's really, really hard to pinpoint because it's so subtle, but all those little physical nuances 
are what makes a guitar player sound the way they sound. And we definitely cover that in Riff Heart as well, like in the tech vault. And tell us a little about that. We talk about like different ways to sort of what you should be focusing on with both the left and the right hand. Like there's more to playing than just picking the note, like where you pick the note between the pickups, when you're palm muting, where your hand is positioned and all these little things that people don't really think about. Like, you know, when you put your hand closer to the bridge and you get that more open, but sort of deep palm mute to when you push your hand further forward and you start getting that more sugar metallic kind of palm mute and just using those to create your own identity with your guitar playing is it, it, again it's something that people just don't really think about that you can do so much with your picking hand just by moving your hand forwards and backwards picking harder and softer and stuff like that and that's what good guitar players do they do all that stuff and that's kind of what those nuances that you don't really hear but you feel to sum it up it's not just what you play but how you play it exactly so anyways if you've been getting good at guitar or you think you're getting good at guitar but every time you record yourself just doesn't sound right just doesn't sound like as good as the people you look up to maybe you need to adjust how you're actually playing it not just the notes themselves but the actual approach to physically creating those notes. And if you go to riffhard.com, you can check out the tech vault and learn more about that. Anyways, it's been awesome, dude. I love you, man. Love you too. Thank you very much. That was fun. <laughs> see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week.